when was I last there? 2008, I think, or was it? Yeah, something like that. We did this thing for um, Voina in St. Petersburg. Oh, for oh, our, people, our group, yeah. The, 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 yeah, yeah. the one that, well, the one that well, Pussy Rout well, came out of, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, we, yeah, we did this thing in the uh, Winter Palace, the class war games in the Winter Palace. That was quite good. We were actually in the headquarters of the, um, uh, you know, that bit in, the, in October where they run up the stairs to, to, to take the military headquarters. That's where this Cyberfest was, Cyberfest 2008. Oh wow! And it no, just I didn't group, know. Art mm-hmm. group Voino were behind it. Uh, well, we got to meet them and and some people who eventually became Pussy Riot. No, no, we know the group and we know like very yeah. <laughs> yeah, never, I, 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 I was, yeah, so it was quite funny that they suddenly became famous sort of situationists because we went there and promoting you know Guy Debord's gay war. It was interesting actually how little people knew of situationism, but then they suddenly became the world's most famous situationists, which is quite nice. <laughs> uh, are you saying that like the uh, the Vaina didn't know really situationism, or that they were well? Not, they like... did, as I said, they did. I mean, but as I said, it's not like I'm the punk generation. So you know, in yeah. nineteen, you know, so I was saw the Sex Pistols when I was twenty, and we were all like, it was like it was like the Bible. Society perspective was like the Bible to us. Um, mm. It was because it used to annoy our Trotskyist uh, teachers as well. <laughs> and if you're taught by Bolsheviks, it's always good to have good. In, indoctrination by situationism <laughs> or or i guess dada or yeah yeah but Dada's not yeah dada, yeah but the story is that was too close to bolshevism you know they mm-hmm. believe that if you change consciousness you change the world whereas edible was against that because they'd learned by then by the 60s 1960s they'd learned that was not true <laughs> <laughs> that you can't change consciousness <laughs> That is easily, I guess. Well, you know, yeah. it's, now, yeah. it's now called postmodernism, isn't it? It's the same theory. It's a religious theory. No wonder it took off in America. <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because, the, the, you know, by now, and it's, it's, be, it's become a kind of, you know, with, with Pussy Riot and it's total, um, because Pussy Riot has been absorbed into the into this you know neoliberal american empire oh, yeah, it's, it's essentially been, it's been completely recuperated but i think and so, you know, and yeah. when we met them i as i said i was very impressed by them i thought they were very smart people um and it, so so but you know I, as i said we only just met all these people very briefly because we yeah yeah, yeah. This show. Uh, who put on the show who put on this festival or, or uh, conference or uh, it was called cyber fest 2008 interesting uh, we've got like the class war games film, and we did it in Russian. Uh, there's also a Latvian version, of course. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we did, we did, we played Guy Debord's The Game of War, and we also had this member, of, uh, one of our members uh, at the time, a guy called Mark Copleston, uh, sells Russian Civil War toy soldiers. He has a lot of customers in the former Soviet Union. Wow. <laughs> and we so had we no did idea. this like Battle of Kazan. So we had like this little we had so we had like the Mensheviks and the SRs against the Bolsheviks <laughs> with a little Trotsky. That sounds fun. With, with yeah, a that sounds Trotsky, fun. Where it was like reds versus reds because you know obviously now in the the in, in, in Putin's Russia they're all feeling nostalgic for the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> but we were watching, yeah. watching, we got this uh, Admiral Kolchak movie, which we watched around the same time, which is completely batshit crazy. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? That was, no. came out, came out a few, it's called something like The Admiral, it's called. Or something. And it's like a whitest, it's like a white propaganda movie. 
Yeah, yeah, but like made by the Putin's people, kind of, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's the insane part of Russia. They like definitely are kind of uniting themselves with the wrong side, with the Romanovs. The losers, yeah. <laughs> the losers. They want to continue the... Have, so, as I said, politically, we were all brought up to, you know, the, the Kronstadt Rebellion. <laughs> that's, and then, and then when, we, when we read more Marx to, uh, to be slightly more sympathetic to the Mensheviks, but... Uh, yeah, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. So should we do? Should we? Do, should we do the the proper intro? You know. Uh, do since, the proper intro. All right. So all right. Welcome back to uh, welcome back to our podcast here. You know, we you gave we got a little preview of what we're going to be talking about, uh, but we have a special guest here for you. He's on the line. Uh, his name is Richard Bardbrook, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. Uh, well, he's of course uh, famous or or maybe infamous, depending on how you. And what perspective you're looking at him from, um, for coining the concept of the Californian ideology, uh, which which came out in this very influential paper that uh, you co-wrote, um, I think back in 1995, if I'm if that's correct. With Andy Cameron. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, and um, and so uh, a few weeks ago when we were when Evgeny and I were recording. Uh, our episode, you know, we moved back to San Francisco to the city where I grew up, and uh, we were. You know, did an episode about this place and and the Californian ideology and how this place is still in the grips of it, even though the ideology itself is sort of fraying and um, collapsing around us. Oh, it has definitely cracks in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so you know, we think we thought, why not get the real deal on on the line with us and 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 and, and talk well, about it I a little would, more? I didn't think it was possible. I mean, it was great. It's great that. <laughs> That you got in touch with the actual we, we didn't know we were worthy. Let's put it this way. Yeah, oh. but you've been like now satirical, but like ironic. But I'm not been ironic. I had no idea that. Uh, yeah, Richard I'm might be still listening. Still alive, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <Still> alive. <laughs> no, not that he's we still you, alive. We, we thought you had died actually... decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, that you're like listening to to this. That that's a completely different reason because of the, uh, my son is half Latvian, so I was I I, I can't remember where I kept. I, oh, that's because you wrote Surveillance Valley, and then I discovered you. Doing podcasts about mm -hmm. about about Eastern Europe and, and, and immigration, so I thought that was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's funny. You know, it's it's. I'm kind of amazed that I never. Um, so you know, your, your book Imaginary Futures came out in 2007, right? Um, yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm embarrassed. Yeah, and I'm embarrassed to say that I. For for whatever reason, I I don't know. I it's just because I was so it was so and probably so rushed and so kind of insane when I was trying to r put my book together that um, I I never I never came across it. <laughs> strange as it is, as strange as it is. I mean, I I was aware of of your paper, um, and I read your paper, uh, but um, I never had came across the the book. And I was sort of uh, reading it uh, last week and flipping through it, and it's amazing how. Uh, you know how how much intersection there is between between our books. I mean, you go a little bit um, wider, I'd say, and a bit deeper. I mean, my book is focused on sort of the origins of the internet itself uh, and kind of coming out of the ARPANET and and what that yeah. meant. But you, of course, go deeper and you kind of take this big journey through. I don't know the the sort of ideological history and and the political history of um, sort of Cold War America and where the ideas that underpin. Um, the sort of Californian ideology, or you know, the cybernetic. Well, the Californian utopia. ideology is like the last time America was the future, wasn't it? So, yeah. And I, I was interested. I was interested in the origins of the internet. Um, that was the original project. 
basically. And I kept, there was always this explanation, you know, like that Wizards Stay Up Late at Night book, which is the standard history says that they're yes, yeah. replacing, you know, cheap, reliable switches with large, flaky, expensive mainframes as a mm. way of survive, having communications that survive a nuclear war. And yes. that never struck me as credible. Yes, yes, that's the... That's anybody, the, the, you know, anyone who's, yeah. you know, one of my other interests being war games, <laughs> anyone who's read anything about military history knows that that's exactly what you would not do <laughs> if you were in a crisis. So I was interested about, why, well, why did they pump all this money into building the internet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that's the question no one asks, you know. No. And then, no. Uh, then once you dig back, of course, you realise it's, not surprise, surprise, it's the Red Menace that causes the funding to flow in the right direction. Yeah, 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 and, and and of course you you know in your book you look at yeah you look at the, I mean some of the kind of more interesting more surprising I guess, to to people who, who don't know this history I guess is is just the the role that these kind of you call them Cold War left the Cold War left I deliberately uh, didn't call them Cold War liberals because I yeah. think that I think especially in Europe liberal means somebody on the centre or the right yes and they were on the left. I mean, that's what I think. It's very difficult for people to understand that now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My fa- again, you know, as I explain in the book, you see, my father was right wing of the Labour Party. He would, he, he loved Tony Blair. He would have loved <laughs> Keir Starmer if he was that's still funny. alive. Very uh, uh, really definitely not a Corbynista. What would uh, he think? What would he think of you writing? You know, uh, oh, Corbyn's Corbyn's. He thought it was a personal yeah. attack on him. Oh, interesting. It was more. It was more the fact that people like Walt Rostow came to dinner after he murdered a few hundred thousand Vietnamese. Uh, Laotians and Cambodians and help overthrow democracy in Brazil. But then when he came to dinner, it was really interesting, thinking back on it, he was seen very radical because he was in Austin, Texas, I think it was. Uh, mm. And he was, you know, you know, working with, you know, getting you know, better schooling for African-Americans. He was very pro-welfare state. You know, so inside America, he was a social democrat. It's just outside mm. America, he was a fascist. And that's something I think people now find very difficult because they tend to be fascist inside America as well as outside America, of course. That's yeah, why you no, can see yeah. a bit of it with some of the centrists in the Democrat Party. Um, but even so, they're so in, you know, they're so bought by Wall Street. This idea that big government was in control. They actually were positively in favour of big government, which I think people in America have sort of forgotten. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an old it's an older America that's sort of before Reaganism really destroyed, you know, took over. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a there's an Adam Curtis, uh, for one of his many uh, films, where he actually he's talking about the New York World's Fair of 1939, which I, is also in my book, and mm-hmm. he's trying to make out it that somehow it's a celebration of big business, and he actually has a clip where he's panning over the New York and USA pavilion. In other words, they're big government. Yeah. So he can't, you know, he, he's, he's so enmeshed in the sort of neoliberal world that he can't, he can't think back to Fordism when it's big government and big business. That's the whole point. The New Deal, yeah, New Dealism or, yeah, the kind of... That, the, so, the, that, you yeah. know, it's when Wall Street wasn't triumphant. Um, and I think that's a really interesting. So that's what I wanted to do is the internet isn't neoliberal because it's actually Fordist in origin. Yeah, yeah, the idea that you need, you just need the, these technocrats require, you know, 
It's about giving power to technocrats to run a society in a technocratic way, so in a, in a, in a, in a centralized that, way, yeah. And yeah. Daniel Bell came to dinner, I remember. It was, again, very charming. Wow. So you know, uh, so you know a lot of these, the people that you write in the book, you, that you write about in the book, you actually... Well, that yeah, was well, the weird you thing know is, them. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, again, the story is, and the California ideology, that it's all invented by hippies. Yes. Who might have, you know, ployed some money from the military-industrial complex, but basically it's a good guy. But when I went back, I just suddenly realized he was all my father's dodgy friends. <laughs> so it is personal to you that I know in the introduction you mentioned it. it's interesting because it seems like your yours book your book and actually Yash's book too stand out in this way they're actually kind of like intertwined with almost like personal histories rather than just being like yeah purely intellectual that, that, was a, that, was a, that was a surprise for me I mean I knew that Daniel Bell had written you know post-industrial society but it was mm-hmm. only when I, I never really connected that, 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 you know, when I suddenly found out that he was, you know, heading the, the Towards 2000 Commission, and then he suddenly realized, all oh, right, you know, this was, this was really was seen as making America the future. And it was a yeah. future of, you say, a sort of enlightened, enlightened elite. Because a lot of them, you know, they, you know Walt Rostow was a Stalinist. Originally, originally, yeah. USA, yeah. <laughs> Bell within a Trotskyist group. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. they became Cold War warriors later. My father knew them through the Congress of Cultural Freedom. Oh wow! Um, which, as a child, I actually went to meetings of in Salzburg. <laughs> well, I read it's these amazing. histories yeah. of the CCF, and it's got the Salzburg seminars, and I thought, oh, I remember going to those. <laughs> But, you know, that's, seven, no, eight, you know, and that's funny. The, the fact that this is personal, and you discovered this later on, obviously, you know, sort of through an intellectual intellectual interest in, you know, the, the this new technology. I mean, it actually it actually makes sense why you know your original paper on this, um, you know, that kind of outlined in 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 broad terms, you know, the Californian ideology, why it's why it's actually so. I think I don't know. It has it has a power to it. It has a, has a has a feel to it that is um, because it's almost like a you know has a it makes sense that it came out of a personal revelation about your, you know, well, your, I think your, your... at that time when we wrote it, I wasn't, I was only sort of semi-aware of it. It was, mm-hmm. only, it was writing imaginary futures. I mean, that more came out of, you know, we were setting up an MA in hypermedia studies, which by as the name has a slightly um, sarcastic ring to it. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was more to do with the fact that we were looking at Wired magazine, and mm-hmm. I. I, when I was doing my PhD, I got money to go and spend a summer in the Bay Area. And, and it, so it, I, I think that helped as well because I'd met people, you know, who dropped acid with Steve Jobs and not earned as much money as he had. Uh, and, and, you know, and seen, you know, this, the racial polarisation of the place and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, and so that made a lot, you know, so I, that gave me some idea where, uh, of questioning the, the myth that they were pumping out. I mean, it helped, as I said, obviously, because my father was very, very pro-American empire, um, and I wasn't, because I'm a different generation. Yeah. I think, as well. No, yeah. I sort of understand, you know, I, I'm not going to apologise for it, but, you know, he grew up during the Second World War, and Britain at the end of the Second World War was, you know, poor and a bit of a wreck, and America looked like this glossy place you know it's hollywood and jazz music and beats and you know uh, and it was the new empire so you can see why he would sort of flip from one to the other and they spoke english which is also a great advantage for british people who decide that they're pro-american 
So who was your dad? What did he do? Because I oh, you, you bring American it... politics, but he but we we went to the states quite often, which was quite unusual, I guess. For you know, I spent a year in a junior school in Boston. Okay, I was I was the goy boy in the Jewish school. That was quite fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, Edward B. Devotion. That's right. I was trying to think what it's called. Brookline. Uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it's an, it, so I, I, I wasn't, so America's a country I was quite familiar with, you know, which is unusual, I think, for most English people. If we go as tourists to Disneyland or... Mm-hmm. That makes sense, yeah. But, yeah. and yet you were not really under sway, the way your dad was, right? Which is well, surprising. Well, I'm a different generation. I'm the 1970s generation, mm-hmm. so... I think I was, but then you say once you get political, you have to understand that was like you know the you know the end of the American occupation of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once you become left of center, it's very difficult to defend America in the way that you know there's that great thing that George Orwell says, doesn't he, in the, in the late 1940s or early 1950s, and he says, you know, if you know he'd prefer a independent Europe, but if we're forced to choose between Stalinism and America. We'll choose America because it's the lesser of two evils, um, and I can understand that. You can see that in Europe why that might have been the case in that generation. But of course, by the time it's the nineteen seventies, it doesn't seem like that anymore mm-hmm. because you're much more aware of what people, you know, what America is doing in Latin America or Central America or Africa yeah. or Asia <laughs> or anywhere other than Western Europe, which is like the privileged bit, isn't it? The, of, of the empire, of the the vassal states. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. privileged vassals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, as long as they're That's with true. America, yeah. It's, yeah. Don't don't yeah. Don't you yeah, dare I mean, turn your back. Know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that. So that <laughs> again, I said it's very much a generational. But what I think is interesting in my generation, still even people who are sort of critical of the empire were very influenced by American culture. So you know, punk, for instance, came from New York. Yeah, it came to London. We politicised it. I mean, that's the key thing. It, did, it didn't really have any politics in Europe, but by the time it left London, it definitely did. Um, you know, so that we were very and you know, film and and you know, not, the whole cult. You know, we were culturally still very dominated by America even now. I think. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, and the whole world is. I mean, even yeah, even it, you know, even the parts English, that are you know yeah. ostensibly opposed to it. It's just it's. Well, I think you did a very interesting podcast about how Russia is. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and and speaking of which, I kind of um, want to ask you this. Uh, me as a, as a as a real Russian who like you know lived there for like twenty years, grew up there, uh, and reading your book, um, basically you putting uh, Soviet Union and the Cold War at the kind of center of almost like the impetus for developing this technologies, the developing internet, is. I mean, as a Russian, it's like so surprising because most, um, even what would you call intelligentsia, I feel like liberal Russians uh, would would almost like doubt, doubt that in a way because you almost give too much power to, you know, Soviet Union and make it almost like center stage, uh, <laughs> that place. You don't and laugh at it. You don't discount it. Yeah, it's like you don't you, discount you, it. Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. don't discount its utopian vision that, I mean, obviously collapsed, but it did um, influence, you know, America did influence Europe. Well, I, I, grew up during, I grew up during the Cold War, so it's not surprising. You know, that, that was, I think part of the problem of the generation grew up after the Cold War, that they only think of the Soviet Union as the nation that collapsed, yeah. Um, 
Whereas if you've grown up during the Cold War, it has a much more ambiguous feeling towards it, don't yeah. you? I mean, you know, the older generation, above me, uh, uh, even if they were, even I've met people who are even conservative voters, that's right-wing, who had a positive view of the Soviet Union because they beat the Nazis. It saved mm-hmm. Britain from <laughs> the Nazis. You know, so yeah. again, you know, it, it, in say in the 1940s or 1950s, it seemed, the, you know, its claim to be the future seemed quite credible because it had taken on Germany, the most powerful country in Europe, mm-hmm. and mashed it. Yeah, yeah and they went and, from and, they went from nothing to, to to you know to sending people into into space, into space and, and yeah. to yes. from being agrarian and to, cre- and to, and to creating <laughs> this country. you know what looks like a yeah like a yeah. And, and the from, Russians and, and you know this Red Army had better tanks than the the Germans and better artillery. All, all the only thing he didn't have was a decent submachine gun, but they soon created that by creating the AK forty seven. Yeah. Um, so you know, so on that level of technology, we forget again. People forget that you know, again about you know, the first satellite into space, the first human in space, first woman into space. You know that sort of thing, uh, and the computers. I think the other interesting I discovered, I never realised quite how advanced the computing industry was in Russia until or the Soviet Union until the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. I suspect a lot of it is to do with the the fear of what computer networks were, because the cybernetic communists told them it was going to overthrow the party. <laughs> so I, I always wonder whether it was like one of those things which they predicted and the bureaucracy decided to uh, to stop that by just not developing computer networks. I was told by a, a Russian friend that they deliberately made all the networks so they couldn't communicate with each other. <laughs> So they sabotage. You mean like they almost like sabotaged their own, yeah, cybernetics program. But would you explain like in simple English what is what do you mean? And in the book you talk about it a lot. What is actually cybernetic communism? Well, you have to okay. So cybernetics is uh, comes out of thing called the Macy conferences, which were held after the Second World War in America. They're funded by. The American secret state, basically the deep state, as it would be called now, and through foundations. And Macy was a foundation, a bit like Soros is now, and it mm-hmm. brought together mathematicians and anthropologists and some religious people. And they wanted what they wanted to do is create a sort of meta theory of uh, reality, you know. Uh, and one of the people they picked up on was Norbert Wiener. Um, who was a mathematician who was teaching at MIT, and he worked on the anti-fascist war, uh, getting guidance systems for anti-aircraft gun. And he, and he and he wrote this book about cyber, which was like the sort of uh, human use of human beings. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah no, earlier this, he wrote this cybernetics book, which became mm-hmm. sort of unlikely bestseller. And it's about using words like feedback and and you know and all the rest of it. And that's why it popularized. And so what it was a theory of, of both man and machines. And so it was picked up then in a sort of right-wing version as a way of saying, well, we have the, you know, the great theory. A bit like dialectical materialism, I suppose. The weird thing is, that when, again, I, something which I didn't really do in the book, uh, and I and visit, actually was visiting this, um, uh, your old home city of uh, St. Petersburg, Leningrad, uh, that I discovered, of course, that that he that his father was a, a, an admirer of Bogdanov, and mm-hmm. so I think I'm pretty you sure actually father? cybernetics actually comes from Tektronix or whatever it was called. You know, tech, 
that whole technology thing that so he was pushing. Yeah, Norbert Wiener's father. Oh, Norbert yeah. Wiener's father Wiener's was uh, was, yeah. a fa- was a was a fa- was a admirer of of Bogdanov. Interesting. Yeah. He was a Russian. He was a Russian Jew. I think he was. I don't think he was a Bolshevik, but he certainly was a leftist, and he was going to go to Belize to go to some vegetarian commune or something, and got distracted and ended up in in Boston. Yeah, his dad, I think, was yeah, was like a big naturalist, uh, kind yeah, of yeah. socialist naturalist. I, I, yeah, I, that, that that's the missing. The, the, the reason why this is is when I was at university, I I systematically read every leftist who uh, Lenin attacked on the assumption that they must be quite interesting. <laughs> not so, not wrong, right? Yeah. So like I, you know, I only discovered Karl Kautsky because he wrote a a, a really intrusive pamphlet called The Renegade Kautsky. So I went off to read Dictatorship of the Proletariat by Karl Kautsky and decided that Kautsky was correct. And the no, council communists are similarly, you know. That's funny. That's a good, that's a good strategy, uh, so, actually. But I never, I never read Bogdanov because he, Lenin wrote this terrible philosophy book called Materialism and Empirico Criticism. Is the English translation, and it's dreadful. It's absolutely appalling. So I never thought the book. He, I kept thinking, well, it can't be very Marxism. Can't be very interesting if you wrote such a crap book about it. Um, but it turned out I, that was a real mistake because if I'd done that, I would have understood this link. I think. I think that's the other link. So it's not only the internet was invented in. The Soviet Union, but I actually think uh, cybernetics was invented. The reason I'm doing this circuitous story is because it was condemned as an American imperialist ideology under Stalin. Yes. But then in the late 1950s, in the thought, it was used as a way of opening up discussion on things like genetics, sociology. Um, and then they, it, then it became partly they started to think about using computer networks to solve the problems of planning. So you have people like Oscar Langer in Poland um, and Kantorowicz, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for economics, amazingly. Um, there were a whole series of people anyway uh, um, who, who actually managed to think about how do we, um, uh, how do we, how do we make central planning work uh, without, you know, Obviously, using some form of markets, but also uh, doing do, trying to create feedback. And they had they had a sponsor, the Minister of Defence, Axel Berg, who was an old Bolshevik, but actually managed to survive the purges. Uh, and he basically sponsored them. And so they had this idea that somehow, so you have like Stalinism is industrial socialism, and the internet is cybernetic communism. And you, you know, the Vanguard Party and the purges and all the rest, it was like a sort of temporary blip on the way to the utopia. Mm-hmm. A bit like, you know, how Chinese today look at things like, you know, all the problems with the males, period, you know. You get this yeah, thing. That's, I, yeah. I was reading this wonderful thing that somebody in China was saying his students think think that the, the, the bad side of males, not the good side, obviously, but the good bad side of males' reign was a price worth paying for China today. And he said the great course for them is that they didn't have to pay the price, unlike his generation. <laughs> but yeah. you could see that that was part of it. It was a way of rationalising the Stalinist period. Obviously, it's get, having its achievements and the bad sides of it, mass murder and all the rest of it. Um, and so then you could say, well, now we've got the forces of production up and we've got this technology and this technology will allow us to create, you know, socialism uh, with, uh, with, you know, with, with, with uh, uh, what's it, uh, 
I was, I was trying to think of how, how they how they, how they were thinking. About it. it was a twenty second party congress. That's right. I think that's where they said that the Soviet Union would reach cybernetic communism by the nineteen seventies. Yeah. So yeah. But then they abandoned it. They did. I think a lot of it had to do with the Prague Spring, with socialism, with the human mm-hmm. race. Yeah. Uh, because one of the guys who was like the chief ideologue of it, I think he actually invented the phrase socialism with human race. Mm-hmm. A guy called Radovan Richter, and he he he. He had this book. He was like he was he he was edited this book for the Czechoslovak Academy of Arts and Sciences called Civilization: yeah. The Crossroads, which was a bestseller in 1968. Uh, Czechoslovakia, and it that it put forward this argument. Uh, Daniel Bell was heavily influenced by it. If you read the book, you can see where post-industrial society comes from. No, that's very interesting. I mean, you're you're kind of tracing this thing to to its source in a way. You know, in, in the, the idea of, a, of again, yeah, of a managed society, of a, of a, of a, of, a, of a centrally planned society. Um, but they wanted to have it. That the, the key thing that they got from Wiener, I think, particularly, uh, was in a human use of human beings, which is obviously you wrote for the United Auto Workers Union. Mm-hmm. Was this idea that feedback isn't just coming from you know, it's not just sending information up and orders down that it's actually a, a two-way process. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a very democratic concept. So, feed, you know, feedback could be just like, you know, I don't know, Walmart. You know, you go and buy some socks and it's tartan socks, played socks, as you would say in America. Yeah. Um, and it sends, you know, a message back to the sock producer to send more <laughs> socks in this design. That's one form of feedback. He, but he was, you know, some people like Wiener were thinking of feedback as a sort of democratic mechanism. Yeah. And someone like later, like Stafford Beer. In uh, in you know in his experiments in Chile in cyber cyber sim yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. it's very much coming out of that Wiener idea. But isn't you know the, all these all these because they're like productivist sort of ideas of you know it's about controlling in sort of industrial economic processes right it's or it's it's well you know, I don't the, want to the, be a peasant yeah I mean uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know if you no, want no. to have yeah. you know if you want to you know if if you want to move beyond capitalism. You mm-hmm. have to think of ways of substituting for the market, don't you? And commodity fetishism and the law of value. And the promise of computer networks is that you yeah. can do that. I mean, you can see, again, it's interesting to see if you look at, I mean, I don't speak Chinese, but you can see that there's certain elements of what they're talking about in China with big data, where they're moving in that direction, where you can actually have real-time planning in a yeah. way that was impossible for Gosplan to do. Because he just didn't have the information, you know. That's what, you know. If you think about the neoliberals, you know, Ludwig von Mises, you know, he's the whole socialist calculation debate. Yes. Which where they say, oh, you can't calculate the price. I mean, obviously, it's nonsense because they could. But it just wasn't very efficient. But they, you know, they could produce enough T thirty four tanks to defeat the Wehrmacht. Uh, but it, you can see that 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 it have a sort of fine the, the sort of fine grained planning if you have you know quantum computing and. AI and big data, mm-hmm. it then suddenly a lot of the cybernetic communist, uh, you, you know, dreams in a way we could say suddenly seem realizable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a friend whose father was, uh, you know, was a, 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 a rather important tanky in uh, Poland, and uh, she was saying, I mean, she said that you know they, they had these uh, concepts, but you know the telephone system wasn't up to it, or the computing wasn't up to it. But we're much closer to that now. I mean, whether it's actually possible. 
I mean, no. yeah, but don't you think that you know a lot of these, you know, when you know, looking at the history of these things and these systems, you know, it's like, yeah, you can have, you can try to pretend that you can create a, um, you know, this sort of rational system of management, right? But then it's sort of, uh, you know, ma- managers still want to have their power, and and they so they create their these systems in a way as a way of almost like uh, you know, big data. The way that I see like big data these days, you know, it's used a lot. But if big data says actually, well, you need to let's say dismantle the neoliberal American state and and replace it with some kind of eco primitivist, um, you know, small village society where everyone is sort of lives in communes and 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 and, and you know, and it's, and it's a great, they're they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that because it, it would destroy their own power and their own place in the society. So all of these things are always um, you know used as for management, obviously, and, and are used to shore up the power of whatever whatever the elite is, right? But so that so. So these ideas of creating these perfect management tools, I mean, whether it's here in America or it's, you know, the ideas in, in the Soviet, Soviet Union or even in, I don't know, places like Chile when they were creating the cyber sim kind of aborted system that they were trying to design there. I mean, it's always... It's like vanity projects it's in a way, vanity, no? But it's also like a kind of almost like a front for whatever the power is in that society, right? But it depends who's exercising the power, you know, which class exactly. is exercising the power. So. You can see, yeah, I agree. You know, if we you know, we're living in a surveillance society, um, and you know, the Stasi has nothing on you know the NSA, does it? You know, um, no, for twenty four seven granular surveillance of most of the planet. Um, but so you've got those sorts of things. I mean, I always find that interesting about America. You, know, you compare like America's response to China's response to COVID. Mm-hmm. So the America had all the tools; they could have done. Uh, you know the track and tracing, the quarantining, uh, and 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 stamped out the pandemic and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. But they got, they didn't do it. Um, no, uh, you know for various reasons. Partly because it, they probably have to admit that they were tracking everybody twenty four seven. But you know somewhere like China, you know I mean officially the death toll from COVID is less than five thousand. I mean and even yeah. if that's a gross <laughs> underestimation. It's well, not, you know, this, you know yeah. in Britain alone, 150,000 people yeah. have died, and that's probably a minimum, you know. And, yeah, and yeah, there's yeah. lots of people yeah. like me who are suffering from long COVID. So it's uh, you can see that this technology can be used in different ways. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we, as intellectuals, we probably find it quite difficult living in places like China, particularly yes, given yeah. that we're dissidents. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, if you're just an ordinary Chinese person, you think, well, the alternative is is... Uh, yeah. what, what's happening in, in Europe and particularly in America, it's suddenly this system looks very attractive. Yeah. It's a great try. I mean, David Goldberg, who does Asia Times, and he said that, he said that the, 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 the Chinese suppression of COVID is one of the great examples of what they now call the fourth industrial revolution. It's probably not the fourth, it's probably more like the eighth or ninth, but the, what's branded by yeah. Davos as the fourth industrial because of the way they used AI and big data to suppress it. I mean, it's also actually- I mean, is that even, but I, I, I it's kind of taking taking the PR at face value. I mean, they just instituted very, very rigid lockdowns, you know? And so I don't think you need- Well, they also I mean, use the party. I mean, that's the other thing yes. which they can't talk about is that, you know, they have a very, the party very active, has a yeah. control at a local level. Yes. Uh, so they actually can mobilize large numbers of people, which you know, neoliberalism has hollowed out the state in across Europe it, and America. And it's all, it just doesn't have the yeah. resources to do it. Um, yeah. 
I had an ex-student and he got stuck in England. So I was having this conversation with him and mm-hmm. his wife's Chinese and they'd live in a city outside Wuhan. I can't remember which one it is now. And he was saying that they'd just locked down the entire housing estate. Yeah, they, it's crazy. They locked yeah. them in their flats for like a month. And then they, yeah. them. And and then, then they had the military the deliver food or something, right? Yeah, that's yeah. How, yeah, but yeah. it was the combination. It was the combination of like Maoist mass line mobilization with yes. AI and big data. That's the other bit that, as I said, a lot of the Western yeah. reporting misses out. Is that there's a, it's revitalized the the lower ranks of the the ruling party. Yeah. No. I mean, the, the yeah. In, in America, it's like uh, well, I mean, there's just doesn't matter about the, the big data. Big data. No one cares about people's health here. I mean, so the the, the and it's just it's. That's what always shocks me about, you know, everyone is, you know, expects America to take care of its people. It's like, you know, under COVID, um, where it's like, well, uh, why, why would it be any different now, you know, from any other, from any other, like just regular life? It's just, you can't even get healthcare in this country, you know? Um, but, it's, but the thing is that America well, was slightly different, slightly different because if you look in the past, like in the past. it was like patchy in different places. You would have things like, you know, right of center governments imposing quarantines or mass inoculations or things like that it's just again it's something to do with neoliberalism yes of course basic quarantining or vaccination suddenly becomes a political issue in a way that it wouldn't have been um you know even 60 or 70 years ago uh and i find that quite strange uh you know my individual liberty that somehow you you that it's uh, you know in um, the Constitution of Liberty, Friedrich von Hayek, and he says he basically says that the, you know the only form of freedom is buying and selling, and you you know so Thatcher summarised it, isn't it? You know, there's no such thing as society; only individuals and their families. Yes, uh, and that's you can see how that's how that's become so ingrained into our society. They were so terrified of collective action that yeah. they prefer 750,000 people to die, that admit that you could collectively organise to suppress a virus, which yeah. if it was a, you know, quarantining comes from the Middle Ages where in Venice they would make people stay for 40 days on an island before letting them in the city. Yeah. And so, I, I you know, so, that, so, we, so we sort of forgotten things which were considered quite normal. Uh, yeah, but then wouldn't you blame Californian ideology almost on that? Well, the Californian ideology was, as I said, is the it's the happy, smiley version of it, isn't it? That we'd be liberated by the internet. Technology. Sure, but my point is, it's like the that's the other part yeah. of like whatever the coin yeah, yeah, side. I think that's why it's interesting about that article. So we wrote it as a sort of manifesto for our postgraduate degree. Yeah. but it, and it goes in and out of fashion depending on whether. We're in a sort of, you know, another another burst of innovation and everyone gets utopian fantasies about it. Or then everyone gets cynical when they realise it hasn't delivered. And then the, then the article comes back into fashion. Yeah. Uh, and also, yeah. of course, I think the funny thing is about it, when it came out in the 1990s, it was seen as this horrible attack on California. Uh, but now it's on the reading lists, as I discovered when I went to UCSD, <laughs> of, of Californian students. And so if it's I go long, around long enough, it becomes part of the furniture of Californian history. <laughs> but you know what's funny, actually, speaking of COVID and the Californian ideology, I mean, so we're in the, we're sitting in San Francisco right now, actually not that far from Hate Street, you know, the kind of the... Hate Ashbury, big inspiration. Big inspiration for, you know, the whole uh, sort of at least the kind of the, the mythology of, yeah. you know, of Silicon Valley and all that stuff. But 
San Francisco and the larger Bay Area, you know, they've dealt with COVID pretty well, you know, uh, partially because, I mean, part of it is because people here are, you know, people, um, you know, it, it, because it's... Uh, they can the, work remotely. The, yeah, the people can work remotely. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty, pretty much the only <laughs> the, one of the main things. Yeah, because there are no poor people in, in San Francisco anymore <laughs> who need to work. You know, who need, uh, and so they're all kind of on the periphery of the Bay Area. Um, so they, so they, can I, all die, they can all die in the outside. They can all die in. Yeah, they'll die in like the poor county. So you can bring all the bad statistics over there. You know. Get it out you of our county. You can just yeah. import more Mexicans if you run out. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and you know it's uh, well, yeah. So, so, but they, but they, you know, San Francisco is very full of itself, and the Bay Area largely is full of itself for for not not being like the other, uh, you know, uh, other other counties and other parts of America, uh, kind of the red state, red states, I guess, or red counties, um, where you know the stuff is running rampant, and so it's very people are. People are really full of themselves, but and 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 but it's true. It's like the reason that um, the reason why it's not because they've mounted like any kind of um, serious, you know, I don't know, like s- strong government response to it. Uh, it's just because everyone here is a professional uh, worker for you know for Silicon Valley, so they've all just doing remote work, sitting at home, and basically self quarantining for themselves, right? Um, and the, and these companies support it. So these Silicon Valley companies support a kind of well, quarantining for their- Well, I was told by an English yeah. guy who lives in Bangkok that they call it the white man's virus there because yeah. we lack the social self-discipline to suppress the virus. That's funny. Uh, and, and, you know, Asian societies, you know, there's lots of downsides. The white man's virus, it's pretty they interesting. they have a sense of collective. And here they call Chinese virus. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but it's, yeah, it's funny because it's like in places like India, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's tricky. It's a tricky, it's a tricky, I mean, well, they, uh, yeah. 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 It's a tricky how, thing, I think, yeah. I think, well, you know, he's just making an observation of the... Of course, yeah, yeah. ...in Bangkok. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they dealt with it more successfully in a lot of, you know, it's a much poorer country, but they developed dealt with it much better because people were willing to do things like wear masks it's they're communally oriented yeah. much more than than yeah. this more sort of the libertarian or libertarian yeah. and oriented think, american and, think, and western societies you have to understand yeah. i think about the whole libertarian which, which again i always find rather odd because when i was growing up a libertarian used to mean anarchist it was a, you can you can, you can thank the coke you can thank charles coke for the rebranding yeah. of the word yeah yeah and so it what happens, I think, is is was well, is the fear of collective action. It forces them to push, you know, for individualism, for yes. individual freedom without the social. And I think that's the problem, isn't it? When you have a, an emergency, uh, we have people here in having mass demonstrations against doing really basic things like lockdowns and mass. Yes. And the f- weird thing is, a lot of it was the sort of traumatized petty bourgeois who are losing money, but actually by not effectively dealing with the virus it meant that this, the economy couldn't open up again yeah so actually even in their economic self-interest it would have been better if they had a really severe lockdown got rid of it and then everything would go back to normal yeah they just have these sort of successive they sort of half-heartedly suppress it and then it just comes back again now they're trying with vaccination you know we're, we're having this experiment to see if you vaccinate everybody or most of the population this it'll go away and it might yeah. do. I mean, it could well work. But there again, it could end up with, again, what my worry is, you could end up with lots of people like me who, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not dead, but I, it's actually very severely affected my life in the last 18 months. Yeah, no, it's... Um, and I think that's... No, it's... Good, yeah. You know, it's that, funny too, yeah. You know what's funny too is, uh, I don't know if you have this, um, tenant, have this in, in, in England, um, is that 
you know, and COVID's really, well, COVID came at a weird time because uh, politically, I think also, I guess, for, for maybe for your country as well, because here here in America, you know, the left, the sort of whatever, this tiny left was was very, um, you know, uh, with, with, with a surge of Bernie Sanders, right? And his, you know, everyone was predicting his victory, you know, his, his, it was, was going to happen. It was, it was, you know, it was predicted in the stars almost. And if you oh, remember, well, I, you know, I, the, the, the primary... I don't, I don't yeah. know Bernie. He, he's into Eugene Debs, which I think <laughs> any American... Well, I'm not knocking Bernie. I'm just, it's, a, I mean, although I have my criticism, of it, but, but just in general, so the pandemic hit right as the primary was sort of, you know, wrapping oh, yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, and Bernie kind of was just, you know, and Biden came into the primary and sort of everybody everybody um, came together to be to, to be against Bernie and he got essentially shanked in the back and he got kind of thrown out of the primary and, and like but there the was pan- no the way pa- they were going to let him stand as a presidential candidate of, of and course done, yeah. done, done and won they would have assassinated him so <laughs> they would have yeah. no, well, we had the same thing with Jeremy Corbyn you know? yes. we almost won in 2017 we came yes. with 100,000 votes but you know there was no way they were going to let us win in yeah. December 2019 you know, yeah. it was amazing how it really did flush out all the the, the liberals, basically, yes. as right of centre. <laughs> they preferred a hard Brexit to a social democratic government. I mean, there was nothing very, you know, obviously the potential was there for being something more radical. But if you read the manifesto, you, you if you were a rational capitalist in Britain, you would think actually bringing in Jeremy Corbyn would correct a lot of the problems of Britain, actually, yeah. by shifting it a bit more towards but, the continental system because there's nothing in the manifesto which is that radical but it's just the sheer fear of having someone who's you know pro-palestinian or but is it wouldn't he also change the, the orthodoxies of the system you know wouldn't he also change the kind of the the power uh, you know the center of the, of the labor party yeah, he so would make, he would make people more self-confident that's the problem and, and you know and now they've got this guy keir starmer in who's like an establishment tool and one of the key things is to demobilize everybody. Again, I think that's the, you know, you yeah. see that with neoliberalism, you know. You don't want people you, to be you, active, yeah. You, you know, any collective action is seen as as impossible. And the only way yeah. you can do it, as Hayek says, is through buying and selling, being an individual. Yeah. And I think that's something really hard wired into our societies because they got really scared at various moments in the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, uh, and so they're willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of people uh, who they could have saved rather than admit that you can have collective action. I mean, it is interesting that, you know, you have this one-party state in China that's more concerned about saving the lives of its population than places where people have the vote. Yeah, uh, no, it's... And that's something that I think is quite worrying in a way, <laughs> given, given, you know, if you look at the world today... Um, and, you know, somebody interviewed me for, for another podcast and they said, well, if you were writing the Californian ideology today, what would you say? And I said, I wouldn't call it the Californian ideology. I'd call it the Shenzhen ideology because the only <laughs> country that seems to actually be confident in the future is China. Yeah. But would you say that they're what now almost like appear more humanistic than <laughs> than the West because of the... Well, you could argue they always have been. So, you know, I've had Chinese friends who said this to me. I, I mean, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm instinctively an anti-Bolshevik because of the way I was educated politically and mm-hmm. working with you know refugees from Eastern Europe. Um, we, the funny thing, in 1999, we were in Budapest, and I met Attila Katani, who was a member of the uh, so, Situationist International. I mean, I was just 
completely gobsmacked and hero worshipped him. Uh, but he came out with this great line. He, he participated in the 1956 Hungarian Revolution and he said, we fought the communists because they weren't communists. Yeah. Which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> I thought, well, exactly. that's, that's very witty, yeah. I mean, yes, on yes, point. But, but you, know, you know, Richard, I want to ask you something because I, I think um, it might have been on the other podcast I yeah. heard you saying that. But anyway, you, you did say that Soviet Union was basically an underdeveloped version of the future. I think that's why, going back to our discussion about the Cold War, I think that's one of the reasons why the Americans were so desperate to create a future, which is what the California ideology is a later version of. You know, the, the, whole, the whole information society prediction. So if you think about it, there was a moment, you know, like when my father was, you know, being political in the 1950s and 60s, you know, where America is obviously much richer than everywhere else. It's got, you know... It's, you know, the standard living, the the, the, the the consumer goods. My mother remembers the fridges were like four times the size of those in England. When we, when we <laughs> well, um, the people are four times cars, the size. You know, all the rest it's of what, yeah, it. what captures the imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah those sorts of really things. Uh, but but it was it was still capitalist, and it had no vision of what you could do beyond consumer society. And so, if you read something like uh, what Rostow's stages of growth. You, you know, you end up with the mass consumption society and that's it. There's no way of going any forward. Whereas the Soviet Union could say, well, you know, we are building communism yeah, and we've got this future. So, you know, it's a long time yeah. distance. It's always 20 or 30 years away. But we're in that process of transcending whatever this present is with something much better. And that, that I think, was a, a, something they were deeply worried about because you could see outside of, the West, so-called, that the, the Soviet Union was very attractive. I mean, partly for practical reasons. It showed you how you could turn a peasant society into an industrial modern society and escape from colonialism. Um, but it also uh, had this vision of a post-capitalist utopia. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't really understand, you know, what the, what the European communists were talking about in the 19th yeah. century. But what it did do is give them some... Thing to aspire to and i think that was very threatening to, in yeah. that period and so, so that's why you they set up the towards year 2000 commissions they go and invent an imaginary future for america and they were lucky because the soviet union dropped the internet because they got terrified by it and so they said well good we'll take that one and we'll we'll have the information society as the future because you know, I talked to my mother about this and she said, well, in her lifetime, you know, the most important invention were things like uh, antibiotics, because you know, she remembers when they weren't around and friends of hers at school died of diseases which relate to curable antibiotics. And also the contraceptive pill, which gave women control mm. over their own fertility. Other people I know said, you know, the jumbo jet or containerization. So it's interesting you yeah. can have all these different but technologies, but they fixated on... Know, telecommunications, computing, and the media, and their fusion into one wonderful, glorious technology. You know, Richard, what's interesting though for for us as Russians, and you know, our parents been from like basically Soviet baby boomers, both mine and Yasha's, like this whole narrative of um, Soviet Union, even ideologically being like anti-consumer society, and for some other like bright whatever communist communal future is just 
so not true to them yeah to yeah, them yeah. because that generation and i i'm basically just repeating what i've been told and i tend to believe it is that while living even like you know my family is from moscow old moscow family yasha's like leningrad is like so untrue because actually everyone was obsessed with consumer goods yeah. it just they didn't have enough of them but that that definitely preoccupied them both top apparatchiks and the simpler people it was like a big thing yeah. obviously there were some idealistic people who believed in i don't yeah. know what is it communism even till the very yeah. end of the soviet union obviously that existed but the general i would say vibe <laughs> yeah. was very pro consumer so, yeah, so, goods so so it's in, in 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 the time that you're sort of exploring in you know your book imaginary futures you know the 60s and 70s when these new kind of ideas about the future you know the sort of cybernetic telecommunications you know global village um, kind of idea about what America um, would give the world, you know. I mean, th they were trying to basically create an American communism that was without communism, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 in the Soviet Union, the, so, so let me just finish. In the Soviet Union, you know, this, the idea of communism and the idea of, of socialism, I mean, it was basically just disintegrating. Yeah, and they were just, and all they, my da well, my dad says, you know, one, one thing that he um, kind of, you know, especially after coming back, coming, moving to America, you know, he's what he doesn't like, what he feels that there's like, a, you know, a real serious yeah, hypocrisy in, 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 in Soviet society. He was seen, he realized in hindsight is that, you know, everyone talked about, you know, your fellow workers and your comrades and, you know, building the, the, the future and the social future. And ev what everybody's worried about was getting, you know, stuff, you know, chasing acquiring a new stuff, lamp. Yeah, yeah, chasing a new lamp, worrying about, yeah, yeah. like, you know, and so t there's always this disconnect in the Soviet Union for him, you know? And in America, at least there's like a more honesty about, about and it's like you, you, you work to get stuff. Society, you know, basically says getting stuff is the ultimate good and is the peak of, you know, of self-actualization essentially. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, and so he, so yeah, so what Jenny is saying is that, you know, like there's a, the, from the outside, when people look at the Soviet Union, right, it's it it uh, it, uh, it offers a much more different picture than what actually is you know is with what people experience or the ideas that are swirling around in the Soviet Union at the at the time. But I think the interest that we're talking about, which is the imaginary future of the American Empire, is yeah. they had fantasies about the Soviet Union, and the book is not so much about really what they were doing in the Soviet Union. I don't speak Russian, so I'm of relying course. on English language sources. I was more interested about how the menace of the Soviet Union created this drive in America to build its own future. Because, you course, know, they, yeah. they, inv they invented the concept of the information society before the internet. So the usual mm -hmm. story is the internet was invented and then they created, you know, all these fantasies like the Californian ideology. Well, actually, it's the other way around. They had the fantasy and that led to the emergence of the technologies which realized the fantasy. And I think that's a really interesting moment. I mean, they would have developed, you know, computer-mediated communication or anyway, but it's the way it was imbued with this extra meaning. And that yeah. is to do with this Cold War struggle over which is the more modern society. And that's from the outside. I think I agree. I mean, I, I, I talked to this guy in Moscow and I, he we, we were talking about cybernetic communism. And he said to me, because he's, again, he's like my generation, so we're sort of late boomers. And he said, oh, they just said that to get on. And yeah, they didn't believe it, you know. Because they mm. were, you know, that as you said, there was that double consciousness going on. And then he went back to read the journals, and he came back to me and said, "Yeah, of course, they, I've realised now they actually were the last generation who actually believed you could yeah. make a communist society in the Soviet." Union. I said, "Exactly." Um, yeah. 
And I think that's really that's a really interesting moment. So maybe you know you could say the California the way we could say the California ideology was the last time you, they thought you could create a sort of liberal utopia in America. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. No, I mean of course, and I, what I, what I, a lot of these things are is you know everyone imagines their foes, and you imagine sort of you know whatever the utopia that you imagine, everything is imagined, right? He, he, so people are responding to. The kind of the, the 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 models and the images that they create in their own head or in their own societies about you know some other or you know or some 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 possible future. So yeah, no, it's it's understandable. It's like the it's not like they're responding to something that existed at that moment in Soviet society, um, and that's what you're writing about. Is you're writing about the the effect that um, the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's and it's and it's early success and early successes had on American American elite and the panic that it imbued. Um, but also, I think you have to understand a lot of these intellectuals started as admirers of the Soviet Union before they rallied to the empire. You know, I think that's a really important thing to realize that you know they that their their default position is being like sort of Marxist for the empire. Yes. So, or at least Stalinist. It's I like, like that, Stalinism yeah. was a very sort of stage version of history. You know, you know that famous Congress of Victors, where Stalin gets up and says, "You know, we're achieving socialism because we built more steel and tractors yes. and concrete this year than the year last year." Yeah, and that sort of very productivist vision, which has a sort of element of truth in it, of course, but. It, you can't reduce it to that. <laughs> you have ignored the relations of production to concentrate on the forces of production. Yeah. But I think yeah. I think it's interesting now. If you say so going back to the you know, thinking about now, though, is you know you can see with the whole the whole response of China is precisely that. There's suddenly this other state that's arrived, and it was all right. China was all right for decades, where they were just you know assembling toys and. You know, yeah, stuff for Walmart, and now suddenly they're they've entered into the high technology era. You know, and so yeah. you know people going to China and coming back and saying, "Wow, you know, they've got high speed rail and five G and you know all the rest of it, and soon they're going to overtake America." Basically, yeah, look at all the mm-hmm. infrastructure and there's no homeless and and that. But you know, yeah, it's it's funny. It's yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, and so it's you like- get a lot of this stuff. It's interesting if you read like there's a there's a uh, an online journal called Palladium. I don't know whether mm-hmm. you've read this, but it's a sort of Alexander Hamilton for the 21st century. And they say, well, what we need is basically to go back to the 1950s and 60s, and have yes. big government. I mean, David Goldman in Asia Times says the same thing. Basically, we've got to copy China. What we need yeah. is state planning. Yeah. Because it's funny. That's, yeah. that's the yeah. great, I mean, the, you know, the well, great Jacobin advantage. is like that. Yeah. What? Ja- Jacobin and like sort of Jacobin the people. Jacobin magazine yeah, in New yeah, York. Yeah, surrounding them. It's just, we need to kind of, you got to keep Walmart just, you know, you got to demo- Walmart for the people kind of business, you yeah, know, like yeah, you got to yeah, democratize yeah. Walmart, democratize Amazon, but keep Amazon in it's kind of in the way that it's, you know, makes life so easy for for, for workers and, you know. Um, yeah, and for Jacobin writers in particular. Exactly. <laughs> no, but you know <laughs> what's, what's funny is you said <laughs> that, you know. They're not doing the door-to-door delivery service, are they? Okay. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of, but, but in a way, the you know when when people say that China is the future, I mean, I say this never have, you know have never have gone to China and um, not really you know I'm pretty ignorant about Chinese society. I know it's it's not it's not an easy society to kind of penetrate and to to, to get to know, but you well, know just from the Chinese, basically. yes, yeah. exactly, and 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 so. Um, and so, but even for people who do speak Chinese, I mean, Zhenya knows people who uh, who speak Chinese. It's still a society that's not so easy to to, to enter, you know, as a foreigner. Uh, yeah. as a foreigner. Um, um, 
you know, just I'm looking at China from the outside, and it's like the the the, the it, it seems to me, you know, its vision of the future, right? It's sort of its its ideology. It's very much. You know, it's very much a kind of a you know maybe a Chinese version of Californian ideology, right? It's 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 based on this high tech, on the promise of high technology to deliver happiness and to deliver well being to society and to deliver something you know transcendent, right? As if you know the, the high speed rails and you know a massively connected sort of internet infrastructure and uh, you know these sort of modern high rises and all these things, right? Um, and you know, light works. You know, instead of fireworks, you use drones. You know, that do this kind of crazy swarms. You know, as if that's going to deliver some kind of transcendence to another plane, right? Um, of existence well, I, and I happiness. Chinese, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a Chinese friend who said, "You, you say what you have to understand is most of the country were peasants until very yes. recently." And and you know, he said he had this wonderful line where he said, "People in the West get really shocked when they hear about people working, you know, six days a week, eight, eight hours a day, sitting on a production." line and he said but the trouble is what they don't understand is it beats working seven days a week 12 hours a day standing in a paddy field yes and he, you know the fact that you've got people out of these really poor villages and you put them into flats with you know flush toilets and yes 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 and wi-fi and he said nothing's going to really change until you have a whole generation coming up who that's all they've ever known he said exactly the whole thing is powered by people just escaping from poverty so they're uh, and, yeah they're, they're and, you know so, you look at yeah. the, you know what's it the ash center for i think it's, is it the ash center at harvard and these are these surveys of what people think of their government and it used to be brazil used to come to the top when lula was president but now it's china and yeah. and much much probably to the chagrin of the cia the, the government ha- the, the, i think the i think the general population is something ludicrous like 85 percent or 92 percent, but then it's even higher among ethnic minorities the very people <laughs> the CIA is trying to subvert on the Soviet model, yeah. break the system up, because they're just pouring all this money into into yes. these impoverished areas and building infrastructure. Yes, yes, uh, yes. And as I said, that's you know the same guy I was just talking about. He he called the Chinese system state capitalism with Confucian characteristics, was his sarcastic <laughs> remark about it. But <laughs> you can see that 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 drive of modernization. We could say this because we're living in modern society of course we know we were in a way we're living in the future future that they're that they're building towards right so in in, well in the but they've their promise is to leap over america so they've not made the mistake of putting (laughs) of putting everybody into suburbs so america you know if we've got you know you have this problem that you don't you know you they basically emptied out the cities and sent everybody out into the suburbs where it obviously was easier to atomize them and control them and to buy them off with nice gardens uh but so they haven't they haven't got that problem. So you can you have public transport and you know and all the rest of it. You know, uh, and you, so that I think that's another interesting about whether you know if we're looking at this sort of you know autonomous vehicles and as I said this whole AI big data fourth industrial revolution field, whether they're building the infrastructure for that. That's the argument people are making. As I said, I've never been there. I don't speak Chinese, but I again I'm interested in the reaction of the West in the same way as I'm interested in the way America reacted to the Soviet Union. Is that they suddenly see this peer competitor. Of course, yeah. Uh, that that is it has actually done something that no one that no one else in the world is doing. And it's in that way the Soviet Union was only really ahead in things like, you know, space travel. Or ballistic missiles, to be more precise, and computing. Subway, subway. But they're they're advancing (laughs) on a broad front because they're the workshop of the world. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, you can see why why the American elite is scared because there's four times the population. You know, most Chinese I've ever met are pretty smart, um, and and the, and they want to succeed, uh, and they and they have connected somehow. The, the promise of building, you know, what's it, the moderately prosperous socialist society with the getting of stuff. And yes, the, and they have stuff. You know, you can, you can, you know, if you see, you know, blogs of people who live in China, there's no shortages of goods. Again, you know, it would be interesting to see if we're if we're th- if we're thinking about you know um, China now as a kind of. As as some some kind of mixture between um, you know 1950s America is sort of rapidly industrializing and you know prosperous society where suddenly you know all this bounty is flowing to regular workers right and work and they're getting you know their own apartments they're getting on you know their their cars they're getting their gadgets and they're kind of living these modern lives um, you know and and something maybe thrown in with like 1930s Soviet Union with the rapid industrialization. In um, state planning and state planning, and a lot of you know, peasants. The key, the key difference is state planning. I mean, that yes. I, I was on this panel with Jeffrey Sachs, who damaged severely damaged the Russian economy when he was an advisor there. And I actually said this just rather provocatively to him. I said, Well, the Chinese advantage is that they've got state planning and you haven't. And he agreed with me. And yeah. I thought, Well, you helped dismantle gospel. <laughs> It must be very yeah. weird. I kept thinking, so if you're the boomer generation in the Soviet Union and you applauded the collapse of the Soviet Union and the abolition of the Communist Party yeah. of the Soviet Union to look at China because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, Russia was five or six times richer. And now, yeah. look now look at it, you know. And I've met Chinese people who said to me the, the best thing that ever happened to China was the crushing of the Tiananmen Square protests. Because otherwise <laughs> we'd have gone down the route of uh, the Soviet yeah. Union and the country yeah. would have broken up and millions would have it's died. A sad place. We'd all be impoverished and dominated by the Americans and Deng Xiaoping saved us. And I'm going, yeah. right, okay. But, you know, you can see that from their point of view because separatism is like being a Nazi yeah. in Europe. You know, I, I'm reading the romance of the Three Kingdoms to my uh, eight-year-old son at the moment. And obviously that's all about if, you know, if you have... If the empire splits up, it's a complete disaster and everybody is impoverished and gets killed. Uh, whereas if it's united, it's peace and prosperity. Uh, <laughs> so, But you can see why that's ingrained so heavily in the culture for thousands of years. Uh, but I, I was quite shocked when the first Chinese person said to me that. Uh, and then I realised it seems to be a general opinion in China that they had a lucky escape. There's a there's a book come out, which I haven't read, by Isabel Weber called How China Escaped Shock Therapy. Mm. Uh, I saw a lecture of hers on YouTube. Oh, that's uh, interesting because really I'm curious really about that. Because yeah. uh, they came very close to, you know, getting a sort of, you know, like that. What's it, I'm trying to think what that guy, there was this guy around when Yeltsin came to power. They said, are we going to, you know, basically uh, over everything in 500 days or something. I've got the book somewhere. And it's yeah, Gaidar. Gore Gaidar. Yeah, yeah, Gaidar. Yeah, no, there's someone else who was like one of the theories. Gaidar was just the front man. And it's completely insane. It's like as utopian as war communism in 1919, just with all the positives turned into negatives and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they obviously, for various reasons, didn't do that. Um, and escaped, but it came quite close. And if they, I mean, if they had had shock therapy and privatized everything, the country would have fallen to bits. Which I guess is why, you know, why Gene Sharp was there for trying to foment a color revolution. <laughs> but, but in our history, I'm just curious. You know, even reading the conclusion of your book, it's sort of like um, 
I couldn't, I still, I don't know, where do you personally stand? Not as a Chinese peasant who is who has been moved into an apartment and is happy to have like a flashing toilet, but as you, <laughs> a British I'm, intellectual, I'm where, old, do we sign punk, up? Yeah. What, we yeah. like, what, for what kind of future uh, or idea of a future, promise of the future are you signing up for or like cheering for? You personally cannot be, I imagine, no, I, cheering so for I was, the Chinese version. Well, I, well, I was... So I was much more ill with long COVID. I ended up watching lots of YouTube uh, documentaries. It's about the only intellectual thing I could do. And it's funny because there's all there's got lots of stuff about people who live in China, lots of, who are very enthusiastic about it, most of them, of course. But there's also other stuff there. And there was this great one about how there was this phenomenon called lying flat, which is the next generation. Their parents yes. work really hard. They've all got you know all the goodies, and what they want to do is basically be hippie they basically i thought oh god they finally got to the next stage which is they've got hippies <laughs> yeah i've read an article about the, the lying flat movement it's, it's just a guy who just wants to sit lie on his back and just read books and not work <laughs> yeah yeah and i thought well, he's, but it's also it's a, <laughs> but it is an old chinese tradition isn't it where you go off to the countryside and play wei chi and you know because people who don't want to, yeah, and don't want to work and, yeah. and do calligraphy like, and don't need stuff. Don't need eighty. Hour, we don't want to work eighty-hour weeks. You know, um, nine, and nine, all this stuff. Six, yeah, it's yeah. Called. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I was on. I was because I, well, I was reading some of these YouTube videos. I was looking at the comments underneath, and one of them saying, "Some Americans saying, is China socialist?" And this Chinese person just replies, nine nine six. <laughs> and I, I, so I just wrote at least the correct proletarian answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. No, yeah. but I, but I, but I think I want to reiterate Eugenia's question. It's like, okay, so uh, you know, you what, what future what, what do, do I, you? What do I, what yeah, what's your future? I, yes. What's my future for Artie? You mean? My for yeah, for us. If you're, if you know, you're the, you're the, you're the dictator. Let's say. Yeah, uh, no, of, but of you're the like, Labour Party, a, like you know? a public intellectual. Well, I, I you know, I'm, I. I you know, I was very much supporting the sort of Corbyn project in the Labour Party. So, you know, I would, I, 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 at one level, I'm still an old situationist, you know, all power to the workers' councils. But on the other hand, uh, if we could have some form of, you know, left social democracy, that would be a big step forward as well. You're so, a pragmatist, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think of all, it's, it's interesting. I think I, 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 I think it was the election of Thatcher, actually, that made, turned me into a prank. I was very much an ultra-leftist, and then after about six months after she got to power, I joined the Labour Party. Because uh, <laughs> I suddenly, re- I, I went off and read Hayek, and I realised how dangerous she was. I thought, and then all the people I remember at the time poo-pooed it and said they don't really believe it. And I said they, people didn't, said the same thing about Mein Kampf. Yeah. You know, if you read Hike, it's very scary. I mean, it's very, very, it's totalitarian, isn't it, in a way? Yes. Yeah. It, well, you know. I read actually in Moscow in my whatever undergraduate program in economics, I had to to read um, Road to Serfdom. <laughs> it was yeah. part, of the, the curriculum. Health, part uh, of the curriculum. Uh, yeah, yeah, the National Health Service is going to lead to the gulag. Yes, yes. yes. And but but I have to tell you it's really bizarre. So it's like about 2006, 7 or no, 7 8 I guess. And that was uh that text was read uh, in a very kind of serious manner with so there's no, no crit- there's just no. it's just as 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 an economic Yes. Text, purely yes, economic, correct. Text, objective. I, I, I remember reading and first being being simultaneously laughing at it and being terrified by it. Yeah. Well, laughing uh, is at least good, but like if you like a sort of young person and, yeah. and no absurd, one actually laughs. Well, it's, a, it's an absurd <laughs> book, but the thing is, you have to understand that he he's basically nostalgic for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where you have like a you know the the emperor is is a liberal dictator. 
and that's what he mm-hmm. wants essentially mm-hmm. and what he's really scared of isn't the soviet union it's austro-marxism it's the social democratic party of austria that's what he's scared of mm-hmm. um, you know he you know they had a very strong workers movement there you know they were the first republic um and so that's really what he doesn't like it's you know it's kautsky and hilferding and all the rest of them you know that's who mm-hmm. he hates the most um, yeah, and the Soviet Union is just the bogeyman, you know. You know, it's going to lead to you know totalitarianism. But that's really what they don't like. Uh, and it's interesting that they had they had real nearly no traction in Austria. They had to come first to England and then to America, because the other the alternative in Austria to social democracy was was first Catholic fascism and then eventually the Nazis. So neither yeah. side were liberals. They were only liberal under the monarchy. <laughs> Yeah, you know what's funny is that I was looking through his archives at the Hoover Institution. Um, uh, oh my, it's been a, now a decade ago or a little bit more, and I, I discovered because he he came to America after he won the Nobel Prize, um, the fake Nobel Prize in economics. Um, he he came to America and on this kind of tour that was sponsored by Charles Koch, and he was already kind of you know he was he wasn't a young guy anymore, and he was he was his health was failing, and one of the things that he asked. Um, his contact at, at the Charles Koch Foundation back then was, you know, uh, one of the re- he, he actually didn't want to come to America. He he didn't want to come to America, and he's and one of the re- one of the things that he said is like, I don't want to come to America because, you know, I don't have, there's like health uh, medical services are very expensive there. There's no basically, you know, uh, there's no government health care there. <laughs> and yeah. oh, to which to which uh, the head of the Charles Koch Foundation replied uh, because he had uh, Hayek had worked in America uh, before and he had a social security number. <laughs> and so the, he said, "Well, if you have a social security number, you can use Medicaid, Medicare, um, basically yeah. services. So don't worry about it. You can come over here and you can use Medicare." That's what Ayn Rand did at the end of her life, as well. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah but it's, it's was it? Yeah, but in a way, the guy was a crank, and he, he you know, it's not. It, though you read him, and it's interesting to see that it's not. He's in a way a symptom. Is the, he's the ideological expression of something much deeper. I mean, yes. If you read like Galbraith, the Alfland Society, he mocks him because in the 1960s, the age of big government and big business, he seems yeah. like a, a weird throwback. But it's only when you have this crisis in the 1970s, political and economic crisis, he then becomes in and suddenly he's made the justification for it. Yes. Um, his ideas are, yeah, yeah. His ideas are thr- thrust relevant. forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah thrust you know, forward. If you stay by there it. saying the same thing long enough. You, but you, he's also a project of the sort of the American oligarchy. I mean, they've been. They, yeah. it's, it, but it just it was. It, it came. It, it his ideas became suddenly uh, saleable well, uh, at the right the moment. Yeah. Obviously, the yeah. other bits of the oligarchy, which is what I'm writing wrote about in Imagining Futures, had a quite a different vision. You know, they were willing to take elements of social democracy of course, because yeah. that's was made the society more powerful. And he said, you can see at the moment. I mean, it's interesting the way their response to the rise of China is that people are half-heartedly at least pushing for a revival of that because if you look yeah. at I don't know, people talk about the public education system in america compared to other countries and it's terrible you know, yes the, uh, no no it, it's all going to be done it, in the name of national defense and you know american yeah, well, that's yeah, probably yeah. the only way they can justify it yeah you know? yeah but you know yeah and you said the homelessness the fact the infrastructure every time i go to america it's decayed more than oh, yeah. the last time i went there no, it's yeah, it's funny. Even in the 1960s, I remember going in the 1960s when I was really small, like seven, eight. We were in New York, and I thought it was quaint the uh, the tube carriages there because they were like something out of a 1930s film. And then when the last time I was back, which was only a few years ago, they still have the same tube carriages. 
they put in some digital displays, but they look exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, Subway is despicable. The, yeah, the Subway is and the vulnerable I mean, part. Yeah. Here we are in like, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and they're basically using early 20th century technology. Yeah. Well, yeah, most but of the, you know, most of, most of the, even the, the signals um, technology yeah. that they have, you know, to, to time the trains, you know, uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the problems there is that they, they haven't upgraded them in 100 years. And so... Yeah. Yeah, so like you can't really, so that's why there's always bottlenecks in the subway system there. I mean, it's, well, it's the other thing shocking. I remember, yeah, when yeah. I was there in 1981 in San Francisco, uh, well, uh, and they were discussing building a high-speed rail link between San Francisco and L.A., and here we are. Oh, that's now, great, man. 40 years later, and they've just built one small section in the middle. <laughs> it's not even built yet. Yeah. I know. No, it'll be built like, it'll be built like, like 2050. Speed up and down the, and look at the wine, wine industry. It's from Modesto and Stockton, I think, is what they're yeah, trying no, to build. It's, extra- it's extraordinary. And the amount of money they've spent on it. No, it's and insane. In the meantime, you know. No, it's a uh, joke. It's a joke. It's. A, I mean, they talk about corruption, you know, it's and, and you know, corruption yeah. index. I mean, the, the, the amount of corruption in these big projects here, I mean, are just astounding. Mm-hmm. I mean, They've completely and they've emptied to the button. Yeah, cross a con- you know, was it how long did it take them to do the Continental Railway that connected? Went it's like it was like five or six years, wasn't it? That they got it from San Francisco mm-hmm. to the, the you know the, the heartland, wherever it was. I mean, they, my entire life in my entire life in San Francisco, so it was like from I watched them try to build a replacement for a section of the Bay Bridge, you know, and and in tw- like in twenty years, they, it took them it took them almost twenty years, I think, to do that, you know. <laughs> Just a, yeah, there's, just a, there's, a really, there's a really interesting lecture by Graham Allison, the one who's doing this Thucydides trap. And he has this wonderful thing where he's look, he points this bridge outside wherever he is, Yale. I think he's at Yale. Uh, and he said, oh, it's taken like how many years to rebuild this bridge? And then he shows his video of somewhere in China where they, they turn up at six o'clock in the evening and have built the entire bridge by the morning. It all comes in bits, and they just assemble it. And then, it, well, the funny thing is, and, the and, funny thing, and he is, says, he says that's why we might be in a bit of difficulty. <laughs> no, the, no, the funniest <laughs> thing bit about the Bay Bridge uh, rebuild here in, in the Bay Area is that actually the main section of the bridge did come from China. It, it was shipped on a on a on a on a on a ship. I mean, it came on a ship. Oh, right. uh, yeah. So they, I think they needed well, the, to like the transcontinental railway was famously built by Chinese. By Chinese, yeah, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because that's why you ended up with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yes. Yeah. No. They, it's they imported all these people to actually burrow through the mountain. But it is interesting that America was capable of doing amazing infrastructure projects. You know, within within you know, living memory. And it yeah. somehow forgot about it along the way. Yeah, we can still do them. We can still do them, but for cars and all this stuff, you know. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and it's all just become what like mask vanity projects. But you know, Richard, I want to ask the one thing, the kind of I guess the sort of uh, real promise of cybernetic communism that did happen, the whole this internet global village, whatever community of people that uh, you you know things like YouTube and that's and those things that allow kind of people to get together or learn things or have I don't know online education or, or I don't know podcasts. basically yes oh, like pot like okay like, pot, us, yeah. like us but I'm not even talking this it's just more like I'm kind of curious in like learning certain things like tools or you can like potentially I guess um, learn I don't know how to maybe play piano by following YouTube tutorials stuff like that and, and not just YouTube they're like special I guess programs yeah. but anyway but this is clearly a sort of I would say it's part of California ideology or the promise and that's the American creation mm-hmm. but what's interesting to me in that it just feels that way. I might be wrong. That despite all that, 
this stuff. I, I don't really think it's actually a good replacement for what like early Soviet Union created and it actually still sort of exists in Russia because they didn't dismantle it, which is Dom Kultura, which is like house of culture oh. that is like a physical space. It's like the 20s uh, revolutionaries created it and it actually There's remained library. in Russia. There's library, you mean. No, no, not the library. It's called the Kai. It's like House yeah. of Culture. House of Culture is I, I this thing. A, I went to a constructivist exhibition and they recreated a, like, Rodchenko, I think, did one or something. Okay, yes, that, that could be. But the idea of it is not just like the architecture, just yeah. House of Culture that exists, uh, multiple of them in different cities all across Russia. Maybe like, I don't know, maybe in Siberia, they're not <laughs> that pop. I don't know. They should exist everywhere. And uh, the idea is that that's for free of pay. Uh, uh, kids and like whatever, I guess adults do, but mostly it's like from early age. You can join any activity, learn any instrument for free, learn dance. Like, I don't know, all, all the sort of activities yeah. can be learned play chess uh, yes 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 and anything like from chess to to painting to uh playing piano playing guitar whatever all that stuff and it seemed like that thing you know speaking of soviet union seemed like a future back in the day mm. that thing really actually delivered um and created a generation of people who could have come from no means at all from basically almost like mm. peasant parents who became some kind of like uh, uh concert concert pianists uh violinists all that stuff well i don't necessarily see from like just observing young people by young i mean like teenagers that this kind of other version of like cybernetic house of culture creates that like it people are not really doing anything useful in this global village of internet mostly sure some people probably do learn something but most of it is just like gaming and being like addicted to some stupid stuff that yeah. i don't know what basically i don't know what the hell it teaches you it seems to be only negative i literally uh, tend now to see um all of this not as a neutral tool as you would even argue neutral and can be used in some way in some ways for good or for bad but mostly like purely negative like i think it should be all burned down i don't know and yasha tend to agree with me i don't know what do you say yeah well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm actually I'm curious what Richard uh, you, says. You agree with the Chinese government who's restricting uh, the use to three hours gaming a week? Yeah, well, and also probably uh, probably publicly executing all uh, video game developers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go a step further. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I spend a lot of my time playing board games, so it's quite funny because we this project class war games. We apart from the guy who made toy soldiers for a living. We were all doing digital stuff, either in arts or teaching. And then when we started playing Guy Debord's The Game of War, we decided to go completely analogue because we'd had enough of looking at screens all the time. Yeah. And little did we realise that suddenly we, we by, by just by being part of the zeitgeist, I guess, there's a, a huge revival of board gaming, yes. figurine gaming. In fact, on Saturday, I'm going to this huge war games convention with Artie. That's uh, crazy. <laughs> and, and it's all full of you know, people who obsessively make miniatures and dioramas and pushing them around. And you can see why that is a way of response to that. Uh, yeah. That you, if you're living in, you know, like screen life all the time. Yeah. But you grown up playing video games. Uh, you don't want to do that as a recreation. So you, what you like is getting around with a group of friends and playing an analog game. Actually. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that so board gaming has just taken off. Like I was particularly in Europe, and I, I assume the same in America, where because of this uh, 
because people want to have games and they also the social thing i think when you're an adult particularly where you can you know drink alcohol and play games and that sort of thing. <laughs> no stoked. it's 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 messed up man like you know if i mean i'm sure you know you have a young child it's the 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 addiction to to these to these oh to these he's just addicted. he's addicted to lego so that's lego so that's another uh, yeah so that, yeah, so he really, yeah, he spends a lot of time looking at YouTube for kids Lego. That's funny. Program. He just what he'll happily watch programs about Lego for hours, but That's then he crazy. goes off and starts building amazing things. We did a really great thing this weekend. He was he was asked by his school for his homework to make a protest poster because we've got this you know greenwashing event COP twenty six going on. Um, and so he made a, a little demo using his Lego figurines. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, at least he's not on. The, yeah, at least he's not on the on the on, on the computer. It's 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 a great thing. Well, he is in the yeah. sense that he's watching telly. You know. He, yeah, but uh, he's yeah, but he's sort of using it to um, augment his sort of real life interest, right? It came out the other day where he said, "Oh, I, I was having a really great dream, Daddy. It was much better than watching YouTube." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I wish I thought it was a lovely comment. Uh, <laughs> Dreaming that is generally better. Yeah. 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 yeah but that, it's, yeah, no, we haven't got to the stage yet where he has a mobile phone. We, I'll be interested yeah. in that. And, and he hasn't really got into gaming, uh, video gaming. But I've had other friends who've just seen seen video games as cheap babysitting, basically. Yes. Keeps them of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or iPads generally, yeah. Like yeah, you, generally, you thrust yeah. an iPad, yeah, into in, in front of a baby, it's yeah, it'll be captivated, it, yeah. But as yeah. I said, I think I think we have to be clear. Uh, difficult. It's, I agree with you. It's difficult because we're we're faced with a uh, a society where it's just like you know they just want to sell stuff. They not really care. You know. Well, yeah. Yeah, the whole uh, thing is predicated on yeah pushing pushing product on you. Anyone can be yeah. what they want, you know. Uh, they you know indulge any fantasy that you want. You know, we all, we've got the chemicals, we've got the you know, <laughs> we've got the technology. Uh, so I again, it, yeah, yeah. but that's all about the you know. So you can see that there's that way that the corporations make out of you know creating individual desire. I think I mean people have yeah. been talking about this for centuries now. Um, but I, as I said, I don't. I think. To reject the technology altogether is equally problematic. You know, you don't want to end up well, like the Unabomber living in a hut in a forest, do you? Well, you know, he does come off as a very. As, I mean, there's the, the the if you reread his. I mean, I actually read his. Manifest, there's the, the the weird. You know, his fixation on on feminism and you know his hatred <laughs> of women is a bit odd. Uh, but it's just it's it's a particular strain of. This kind of like right wing kind of, uh, uh, but but I mean the his you know his, well, his, his, his sale has turned into a confederate. Have you seen that? <laughs> no. Oh, he wrote a book about the Luddites. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. popular among anarchists, a sort of primitive. That's funny. Now he's involved with this thing called the Abbeville Institute. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what my problem with the technology. Of, you know, it's yeah. all like the Southern tradition, and they're really into John Calhoun. Interesting. You know? I think so, I, I think Abbeville might be actually where. He what do you mean, from. like Confederate Luddites? It's pretty interesting. Well, it's a sort of it's a sort of it's that sort of strain in American conservatism where yeah, you're going you back look, to agrarianism and all that stuff. Yeah, South yes. somehow, you know. A better, a better time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it makes sense. I mean, but you know, my problem with this with this technology probably, and I and I think, you know, I I imagine it would exist in in any kind of version of it you build, whether it's a you know whether it's the you know the tool the 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 version of the cybernetic future that we live in now, which is this thing built by these you know originated by the Cold War state 
by the military and then kind of absorbed into this privatized version of it. And all of it is now just pretty pathetic because it's all just designed to sell you shit, you know, that you don't want Uh, and to, you know, and to, and to, and to try to like spy on your desires and, you know, and try to figure out who you are so they can better sell you stuff that you don't need or, or, or want, right. It's just to, 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 to to further this sort of productivist society that we live in, you know, to Um, give you Brexit and Boris Johnson. Exactly. And then to control you obviously in, in politically. And, um, you know, that's why there's all this fear about fake news and disinformation. It's right. An attempt to, to regulate this internet in order to align it closely with this sort of establishment hmm. politics and established power, but but I mean that's that's the that's the that's the version that we live in now. But I guess if there's a version of it that's I don't know more democratic or more socialist, I don't even know what that would look like really. You know because it's hard to imagine it. Um, but I still think one of the problems with this with this you know this virtual reality technology because that's what this stuff does it creates a sort of a, a parallel virtual reality in which you exist and through which you connect with people and all this stuff is that it takes you out of the world you know um it takes you out of the physical lived physical lived experience and and creates um again the you know the the the, the ultimate you know the the end goal of all these things is just a vr headset on your face you know but that's kind of you know an ipad is pretty much the same thing or you know an iphone is pretty much the same thing it's just not attached to your face but it's right in front of your face and so it takes you out of the world you know and the problem is that the world needs to be lived in. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, it's like it disembodies us, and and I think that's it. It's a, so I, I actually, uh, the, the 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 more time goes by, and the, the more the more I think about this stuff, and the more I am actually uh, kind of agree with Evgenia here is that like on, on a some on a somewhat fundamental level, I, I would it's hard for me to to even. Uh, phrase this or to 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 explain myself very clearly because it's such a such a weird you know such a I don't know what the alternative is but one thing that I don't like is that and I think it's it is dangerous regardless of who controls the technology you know where the power is is it's disembodied um, nature you know it's it's and so, so, so yeah. Yasha Yasha uh, yes in so in 1967 Guy Debord publishes the Society of the Spectacle. And he says, in societies where modern conditions of production prevail, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. That's the first thesis. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting how that, you know, that, that is not, it's not a new process. It's not the internet that's done that. Of course not. Yes. Um, it's, it's to do with industrial civilization, the, 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 the creation of a mass media in a way that's not... Yes. Now, before we had religion and now we have media. No, no, of course. Yeah, the internet is a kind of... is, is It takes it to another, to another level. If you read um, Ludwig Feuerbach, The Essence of Christianity, you can, you can see how the ball lifted whole chunks out of that and just substituted you know, the media for the word religion in Feuerbach's original... Um, so that's that, interesting. That, that is interesting. Yeah, that, you know, we li- you know that this idea that it's comforting to live in a fantasy world. I think human beings have done it for a very long time. Yeah, um, but reality has a tendency to come up and, and bite you occasionally, like the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference, you know, because you didn't need, um, you know, you could have you could have a religion, right, without technology without and i mean you it, it's you can have an oral tradition right that's it's a it's a but a religion is a religion technology. Is, it's it's you know if you go to uh, when we were in 1987 they kept trying to drag us around all these bloody orthodox cathedrals or uh and that's a technology 
the the know, building the itself icons yeah. and the smell and the and the candles and yeah it's the virtual reality uh, yeah. uh, and that's a, that's a virtual reality i must admit well yeah. i've seen one you've seen them all. we kept trying to say no we've come to see bolshevism and anything pre-1917 we're not interested in it basically um that's why we've come. We're revolutionary tourists. <laughs> <laughs> but that, what did you think, by the way? I'm just curious, especially when the first time you you, you came, uh, came to like Red Square and probably went to oh, Mausoleum. We went to see Lenin. That was the best. Yeah, the Lenin. That was the, the, high, that was the high spot. The high spot of the whole whole thing. Yeah, we had to, we had to, we had to peel off the tour. We had this two week in tourist tour, and they they were dragging. I can't even remember what they were trying to drag us to. But we just said no. We're going to see Lenin. And they said, don't take a camera because some Lithuanian tried to blow him up with a bomb in the camera. Um, but it's the only constructivist building we could find. I mean, they, I gather there are other constructivist buildings, but there wasn't yeah, of course at that there point, are. there wasn't like a tour, you know, a guide which said, where's the other construction? So that was good. And the, and the murals inside the uh, actual tomb are fantastic. Uh, we were there and the, and the KGB guard suddenly sort of like clockwork soldiers started changing the guard very slowly. And there he was, like Nosferatu, waiting to mm -hmm. jump up and order the murder of more workers for disagreeing with the party line. But yeah, it was great. It was really, really, really spooky. Yeah, um, because he, he it, I mean, it clearly while he's there, you know, it's he's like the religious symbol. I think, I, I thought that was the best thing we saw in the whole of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the, the funny thing is I've met people who've lived in Moscow all their life and had never been to see Lenin. And I said, well, that's really weird because we just thought that was great. And they kept saying, oh, no, they should bury him. I'm going, no, 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 much better to leave him there. Um, Trotsky is well, telling us that they think it's all very weird he's there. And I said, no, no, it's great. I, I'd really like to do a, a stuffed dictator world tour. You could go and see Lenin and Mao and Ho Chi Minh and Kim Il-sung. Yeah, how about that? Be you can you can you, they can travel you know maybe you can come back travel, to London and you can see travel Jeremy, exhibition yeah and, and then in oh, London, maybe you, in London we have Jeremy Bentham who's stuffed in a in a cupboard yeah and they but do you think maybe transhumanists will come up with something like they'll cryonic. clone you they'll clone no, 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 they'll, they'll clone them they'll reawaken them yeah they'll clone oh, yeah, or like, yeah. yeah yeah they'll clone them from their bones you know that they'll yeah, discover yeah yeah well, as I said, I said, I said, it's that strange thing. It must be looking if you're a Russian looking at China, um, thinking whether whether they that, that was the mistake they made. You know, uh, <laughs> so, well, the party bring back the party. All is forgiven. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, as long as it's their state planning, everything is going to be great. <laughs> well, it's, as long it's, as it's, yeah, but it's it's the idea that state planning was somehow socialist. I think is interesting. Uh, again, because if you read the stuff in the nineteen twenties, they uh, when they set up state planning, the, the Bolsheviks didn't really have anybody who'd read Capital um, because they were sort of more on the rev you know the practical thing of politics. So they it hired all these Mensheviks to run set up Gosplan, and they because they were Mensheviks, they just assumed that Russia was a capitalist society. So they went and dusted down Volume <laughs> Two. And looked at the reproduction schemas and just ran it as a capitalist economy. Um, wow! Uh, and obviously they were all shot or got rid of in by Stalin, who thought that this was, you know, the, the iron will of the dictator could overcome the law of value. Um, uh, but you know, he was, in a way they were proved correct. You know, so, yeah, I don't think there's anything inherently socialist about it. Uh, it's just funny the way that you know this is what Hayek justified. That Hayek justifies the things which. When I was growing up, uh, it's it's uh, 
the the great political issue on the on the British left was the class nature of the Soviet Union. You had to take a position. The Russian Revolution was the greatest event of the 20th century, and you had to take a position on its politics. And, and ultra-leftists like us would say, oh, it's just a bourgeois revolution with red flags. It's just Russia catching up with the West. And, of course, it's, a, it's state capitalism. And other people say, no, it's a deformed worker's state or degenerate, whatever, you know, whatever the... The, the, the version <laughs> bureaucratic collectivism. They had all these different theories. And what's interesting now, I was thinking to my students today, the Russian Revolution isn't the most important event of the 20th century. It's the Chinese Revolution. Uh, now, the Chinese Revolution used to be like an afterthought. One of the impacts of the Russian Revolution was that it spread out into Asia and Latin America yeah. and Africa. And now it's completely the other way around. It will now, to when my son grows up, it will be that Russia was just like a rather botched anticipation of China, because China. Interesting. Didn't go but liberal. what is what is China building towards? Is my question. What is what is this state? What is this future? Uh, what are they capturing us with? Like, yeah, what, what are, a speed rail is not enough. What are their like? No, no, no it's, state, it's, it's a you know that they stayed with state capitalism. I mean, you know, they could well go you know have a the, the America. If you watch these, uh, I was watching lots of YouTube videos. I said when I was ill documentaries and you have all these americans who are just desperate for a chinese yeltsin that's what they want and they almost yes. got one in 1989 but the uh, deng xiaoping basically put an end to that and they yeah, keep yeah. hoping every new leader they keep hoping that they will basically sell the country to the wall street essentially um, yeah but what they've got now is this model of state capitalism yeah, very yeah. successful model of state capitalism. So you, you think it's unlikely that that's going to happen. It might well happen. I mean, you never know. The ruling elite might decide they all want to become billionaires and have yachts. I don't know. But, well, but uh, I mean, it just that they could they could all live in their in high rises, you know, go to their factory jobs, um, you know, eat uh, f- eat yeah. eat meat that's sort of grown in these, you know, like these pig farm sky- skyscrapers yeah. that they're developing. I mean, that's the form of the of the future, you know. But it's a form it's of the future not that not very attractive. I don't I, I don't know what no, the, what, what is the, what is the what is the um. I didn't say I didn't say it was socialism or communism. They think it's yeah. socialism. It's interesting that state capitalism has become in the 20th century became synonymous with. Guys. Socialism, which it wasn't in the 19th century. In the yeah. 19th century, if the nationalization of industry was seen as a form of capital, if you read Engels, it's very clear. But in the 20th century, because of these the countries which were outside the imperial core and they need to industrialize, and they use the slogans of socialism to mobilize the population, and therefore state ownership becomes, becomes socialism. And then the neoliberals reinforce that by saying yes of course it is and we're going to get rid of it um whereas in as we were talking earlier on in the sort of fordist era that wouldn't have been seen the case mixed economies were seen as actually the the most developed form of capitalism yeah yeah Um, and it's something weird happened in the 1980s i think partly it's because to do with if america wanted to really control the economies of other countries they had to privatize them you couldn't have the autonomy, you know, if you have large state sectors, it means that America can't control a large part of the economy. Whereas you privatize everything, they can come in. That and makes buy sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You see, you get, you know, if you're like the guy who runs Ethiopia, who's got, they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize, didn't they? Because he promised to privatize everything. Um, now, now he doesn't look like such a proponent of peace anymore, does he? <laughs> <laughs> Richard, does your does your son learn Chinese? Do you want him to learn Chinese? Uh, 
Well, he knows Latvian. That's quite a good <laughs> Well, Latvian's no, gonna... you're saying China is the future. Why is he not learning Chinese? Because <laughs> well, I, I think... I, I, I did tell him that he had to learn 6,000 characters and he looked at me as if it's <laughs> difficult enough learning, learning how to read and write English. <laughs> I mean, unless everyone is really rushing to learn Chinese and learning about like Chinese pop culture, they're not going to win over the world. I mean, yeah. it's not going to happen. It has to be not just economic, it has to be cu culture. Like, yeah. I don't know, it has to be somehow, um, you know, what America did in a way. I mean, it's sort of... The right. food would improve if we all went Chinese. That's yes, that's true. Um, yeah. Okay, that's true. And they have lots yeah. of... And the CPC make lots of great, great movies as well. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, you go sure. to there's lots of... If you, want, if you look, you search for things like Chinese Civil War movies. There's some fantastic films. Like, if you want to watch... There's a great one called The Assembly, which is about the... The, the, the 1945-9 uh, Civil War. And that's, that, that it's got a beginning of that, a battle scene that which makes Saving Private Ryan like a 50s Western. Oh, it's wow. Viscral, absolutely viscral. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I think, I think you know, people would have seen it unlike, I'm sure, I'm sure America's ascendancy yeah. seemed unlikely in the 19th century, wouldn't it? I mean, it was just basically Buffalo Bill was the only export, <laughs> cultural exports of America, wasn't it? And then suddenly it becomes dominant because it's the dominant player. But I don't know. I don't know whether we're going to live in that state. The, again, it's interesting. Yeah. That, I said not, not that I know much about China. It, is that is that I'm more interested in the Western reaction to it. And the assumption yes. is that they will act the same as the West, that they will become a unipolar centre. You know, you know, I mean, they are 20% yeah. of the world population. And if there's a displace america as the core i yeah. guess that's that's one you know uh, uh lee minky uh, the rise of china and the demise capitalist world system really good really brilliant book which i highly recommend and he says well if you take the valenstein manual valenstein analysis you know, the core and the periphery it's the core is always about 20 percent of the world's population or 20 percent of the capitalist world's population so if china becomes the core that this yeah that may be that fantasy or fear actually the fear yeah. of all these American is true, but is that going to be the case? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just yeah, um, yeah. No, it's interesting because because we're also in a in a in a different. You know, we're not in the 30s or the 50s uh, no. now or even the 60s. We're uh, kind of running up against sort of these, um, you know, ecological limits hmm. uh, in terms of just development, right? Yeah. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see how China with its high rate of growth and its, its you know, the sort of well, hyper-industrialization, yeah. how, it, how it deals how it deals, and, you know, the, the, the material constraints, and sort of environmental constraints. Uh, are gonna not consuming play. as much as Westerners. So they no, they're not. Not there, yet, yeah. But there are yeah. an awful lot of them. No. Not yet, yeah. No, they're, and they're, but but there are. I mean, it seems like to me that they're ramping up towards a Western consumption model, um, right? Uh, could, so everyone is a model citizen consumer, um, and so it'd be interesting to see you know how that how that plays out because we are the kind of the material environment in which things are developing now are you know radically different than you know just the, you know, half a century ago or a hundred years ago. Lifestyle as Americans. I mean, Americans live a particularly Wasteful. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, I mean, as I say, Americans, what they have three times the carbon output of almost everybody else. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, it's, and then yeah, on it's... top of that, they're importing lots of carbon from other. Yes, countries. yeah. So, so I mean, most of know, what yeah China I mean, probably puts out carbon. That, is, you would yeah. have to, as I said before, you'd have to move everybody from the suburbs back into the inner cities, wouldn't you? Which would be a bit of a trauma. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Because the you know the, the assumption is everybody will live in their own large houses and pump out lots of carbon, and then they will drive around in an SUV pumping out more carbon. No, it's going to be a Tesla at this point. Or yeah. a Tesla. That's true. <laughs> but, uh, it's good to, yeah. but, but I think I think I don't know. I, I, it's, it, I I'm not an expert. I'm more, as I said, I'm more interested in the reaction of the West against this. <laughs> no, I look. I agree. Which, it's, which yeah, obviously yeah. is easy in a way. It was easy that when America replaced Britain as the global empire. You know, in a sense, America was is a it was, was an inheritor of the European empires as well as the destroyer of them. And we share a language and, and partly a culture. So you're right. The, the, the problem with China is it's got a completely different history and culture. Yeah. Fascinating one. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, it's just like if you read a Chinese book, it's like all the different names are much more difficult to recognise because you're not used to reading Chinese names. Yes. And there's only a hundred of them anyway, or something. Isn't that the joke? There's only 150 Chinese surnames. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so that that yeah, I, no, yeah. I think that's that's a, that's a strange thing for 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 non Asians to get their head around. But if you look at yeah. Asia, China has been the dominant, or certainly East Asia has been the dominant cultural influence for you know thousands of years. So it's not going to be so strange, is it? No, no. It was just an aberration that the British and the other imperialists managed to collapsed the empire for a hundred years in a sense it's just going back to where it was in the middle ages by being the richest country in east asia it's true yeah but whether you can and, do and the, that within the a capitalist advanced, world yeah. system, i mean that's what the lee minky book is really interesting about is can you do that within a capitalist world system and he's also very strong even though this book was written 15 years ago whatever about as you said the ecological limits to this yeah. you know can you have everyone consuming like americans you can't that's not possible so that means yeah. americans are going to have to consume less the other people are going to consume more or yeah, yeah. Or consume differently, actually. Or that, or that, any kind of future society that has any kind of sway over you know people's imaginations and has to yeah. create, come up with an alternative, um, alternative mo- values, you know, uh, yeah. for it, maybe that aren't tied to hyper industrialization and and hyper consumption, no, um, as the as the as, you, the as the as the as the sort of the 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 you know the peak of of human existence is the you know well, self realization. Oh, we had the society, yeah. wasn't it? it? Was the it yes. was the great promise of the nineteen sixties? So in a way, if yeah. you get people to consume less, you need them to work less as well. Yeah, and you need to just exactly, which doesn't sound so bad, does it? Well, Karl Marx says that real wealth is free time, which is famous yeah. comment, and his yeah. son-in-law. Uh, yeah. Amen to that, I say. Yeah, yes. Said, said, said that, you know, it was the right to be lazy, was Paul Lafargue's uh, great famous <laughs> He was a founder of the French Socialist Party, but I keep thinking that the, the socialists in France forgot that in the 20th century somehow. Yeah. But so they, for, yeah. they, again, they saw industrialization as a stage which to get people out of poverty. Yeah, um, and then they, you know, the you know, they said, "What's it?" Paul Lafarge calls it Athens without slaves. You know, the the purpose of life is to live it, not to work. Yeah, yeah. and obviously, you know, the, the the Athenians could offload a lot of the effort onto the women and the slaves. Well, the idea is there. You have the robots. Yeah, but now you want, or whatever, if you want yeah. to have an equal society, uh, the machines will take over a lot of that role. I mean, that was their vision in the nineteenth century. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. And so things like democracy become possible because people have the free time to do it rather than just 
occasionally turning up and putting a cross against one person or another. Yeah. They actually yeah. can govern themselves, you know. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's the, I think we've, we've, I mean, we're probably coming to the end of yeah. the interview here, but I think it's, we're coming to something interesting, I think, is that, you know, whatever the the, the future society uh, that you know may might not win out. You know, who knows what's what's in the, what's happening in the future? But the key the key to the future is to figure out how to use this. We've already gone through industrialization. We have these technologies. Yeah. The, key, the 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 trick is to how to use those technologies in, in a mix that don't tie you know um, self realization you know human self realization to just consuming stuff you know and just working in you know for these in, for these in, in these industrial structures and that's i mean that's, i i would I, like i would really hope that china figures it out and and spreads it around the world if it can't you know uh but it doesn't seem like that at this point but but maybe maybe you know i'd, I'd be happily be proven wrong well we don't we don't yeah. know do we yeah <laughs> Well, I said it'd be interesting for you to think. Of, I mean, as I said, that one your wonderful uh, podcast about how all the Russians are living in America headspace. When they, yes. they look east, it must be very strange. I think. What could? Yeah, it I mean, be I, I China. I mean, there's a lot of you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think just generally from speaking to our some of our friends, you know, in 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 Russia. I mean, I don't think they have a lot of they have a lot of respect for China. I think as part as as in terms of the, how it's been able to. Um, I don't know, like in terms of governing, maybe, but not like people aren't trying to ape Chinese society, you know, or ape Chinese culture or, or follow it, you know? No, yeah. they're not. I don't think they're even jealous of high speed rails the way Americans are. They don't care. They yeah. want like the car, they want Tesla. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like, like I'm talking about the Russians. Like they don't care for this, like they overall, don't. the urban intelligentsia for this, like Chinese rapid yeah, <laughs> industrialization. Like 1930s China, yeah, no. yeah, version of China that's industrialized. Because it's not, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I think because it's not sexy. I don't know what else to yeah. say about it. Because, yeah. It's not exciting. Yeah. No. It's not no. the future. It's not exciting and it's not the future, but for them, it might be yeah. for them. Not that I say it's not well, I was the future. told by a Chinese comrade that they used to go to America to see the future and now they go to America to see the past. <laughs> that was his cynical comment. That's funny. I wonder what, yeah, I wonder what they yeah. see. This, I wonder what the future is, you know, for, for China. It's know. like for these, yeah. Who knows? Well, Russia, like the, Putin's, the, the Putin's crooks or whatever, what do you call it? Cronies do try to come up with some weird version of Eurasianism, right? That's sort of like neither America nor China, but kind of like. Dugin. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But whatever. But Dugin is Dugin just. Is just yeah, cringe. He's just like the guy from the 90s who, yeah. like, I guess, coined that in a way. But what's happening, I feel I like. Came, I thought that was a czarist thing, Eurasia. Wasn't that, I thought that came in the 19th century as well. The sort of Slavo, well, really? When, when, yes, when the Soviet... The, the Slavophile, you know, because the classic in Russian history is Westerners and, and Easterners, isn't it? Well, it's supposed to was when the when it was actually no, it, I think it from came. what I know, it's actually came like the term itself from like the research that I did came um, actually in like nineteen from what I understand nineteen um, twenty one yeah, specifically yeah, when uh, like the emigres from the yeah. um, white, or Soviet Russians, Union, yeah. the white Russians actually came up with it, and the white Russians who were not necessarily pro tsarist came up with it. They actually wanted to envision some sort of uh, future and some sort of alternative to the Soviet Union. That 
that is neither pro-Romanov or like the kind of empirical whatever Russia nor Soviet Bolshevik. It was something kind of else, which is weird. I guess it's like a it's, sort of a um, I don't know what it's is it? an nationalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. nationalist, nationalist, multi-ethnic na- uh, empire basically. Yeah, multi-ethnic Stalin empire. Un- under 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 Russian Orthodoxy. Yeah, I think it, I think yes. it's called Stalinism, isn't it? <laughs> well, the you like the, the the one I'm referring to the strain of Eurasianism, whatever the text that I read. Um, I, I can't remember now the names. I can send it to you if you want. Uh, it, no, it actually has nothing to do <laughs> with the uh, Soviet Union at all. And it was like, in a way, almost in a weird way, reintroduced, re, I don't know, rehashed by Dugan in, Dugan, yeah, in early back, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, 1990s yeah. with a completely, well, with similar meaning, but clearly with a different agenda in a way. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, but it's interesting. It came out of emigre communities in who were settling in Europe, and I think they didn't see themselves. They didn't want to be fully like I don't know what European <laughs> white Russians. Um, they yeah, so they clang to some sort of idea of Russia that they, well, they that they you know. Well, they don't. They you know, lots of people in the West don't think Russians are Europeans. Um, yeah, totally. I, 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 yes. I was at this NATO wargaming conference, and there was this guy who had been on the British general staff. And I was saying to him, I said, well, why are you so anti-Russian? You know, Putin was desperate to join NATO and the EU when he first came. I thought that's why they brought him to power to sort out Russia so it could join the West. And he said, oh, we couldn't let the Russians in. They're not civilized. <laughs> I said, well, he's the Mongol, that, well, they yeah. Berlin from the Nazis. This, this, yeah, they're not civilized. The scary I, 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 was, yeah. I was just stunned that he could say that. I mean... Yeah. Well, that's actually the accepted um, xenophobia, accepted racism. You can yeah. say stuff like that. You can say stuff like that in America now. It's yeah. really weird because I guess if you're racist towards a sort of white-looking person, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. That is fine. Three, yeah, I, I call not, it. I the call Russians it respectable. aren't woke, are they? So, uh, I call it respectable racism. So it's you know it's yeah it's well, the it, whole, well in Europe it's anti-Americanism. Uh, yeah. I used to live with an African American, well, woman of color, as she called herself, and it was funny. She, all her white American friends would complain about about rude remarks made to them by by the locals, and she'd never get it because she was uh, Browning. So that was very very strange. Uh, they just assumed she was oppressed by American. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny. But, yeah, but white Americans they do tend to get this. There's a lot of very silly anti-Americanism. Actually, I mean, the ruling elite obviously are completely gobsmacked and love America and sell the country out every time. But I think at a low, as a, a, a as a sort of lower level of society, the mass of society, there's this sort of love hatred of America, and a lot of people, and that's a sort of respectable racism mm. because they they sort of just look down. They think, basically think all Americans are loonies with guns. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, and, and which is really sad which... because there's obviously a lot. I mean, there's a lot of really, as you know, there's lots of really good things about America. I'm American. Yeah. Uh, I think if you're anti-American, it's, you know, uh, you, it's default position is an okay one, you know? I mean, just is well, only to, neg- an- to negate, to negate the, 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 yeah, to negate the, just the pro-Americanism, you know, around the world. It's, That's, but it's, they, it's, but it's, you it, could yeah. be against the empire, but not American. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yes. I yeah. That's a distinction that people make it, you know, they don't like the em- empire and therefore they, they hate on Americans, which is, and also, Americans are some of the biggest victims of the American. The of course, yeah. Uh, but there, and, and you but, just have to yeah, look yeah. at the homeless encampments. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, it's funny here. It's like you'll have uh, homeless encampments with the giant American flags draped on these, you know, these mm. these shanties that they build. So it's like it's not that's it's a pretty common. 
it's a pretty common sight actually so it's a, you you find some really crazy you know mixture of victimhood and 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 also you know um and like and just the the false consciousness you know as as, as i guess it would be would it be the pro- proper marxist term for it that 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 just you know that you see here in america so it's like i don't know people do have to in especially in a in a country that sees itself as a democracy you know people do have to kind of uh, take responsibility for their for their yeah. government a little bit you know what i mean it's like i don't want to i i'm i'm sympathetic you know because i live here and you know i'm a part of it but like just yeah I don't know. Americans just—I I, I don't have much sympathy for Americans, to be honest. I don't know. Uh, even even if they are the biggest victims, they're also the they're, they're their own biggest they're on their own biggest enemy in, in America, a way. It's not yeah. a democracy, though. I know been, that. I know that. But it's a republic, not a democracy. Read the well, democratic republic, uh, democratic republic, right? Well, I mean, it's republic has, is, it's had a democratic a republic is a kind of a democracy, isn't it? No. It's had a universal suffrage since 1965, which is in my lifetime. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, 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 it means well. Yeah. It means well. Some people yeah. mean well. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think America's ever been a democracy. Uh, it's an oligarchy with, with elections, which is something different. Yeah. Democracy means the rule of the people. The people have never ruled in America. There's well, which moments, people? Yeah. You know, well, yeah, you're sounding. You know, you know, I know. know I mean, obviously, <laughs> during the Civil War in the 1930s, oh, maybe in the 60s, 70s, where there were elements where democracy was you, breaking through. But then it's always been heavily. You're telling me that America's not a democracy? <laughs> I, I, I will not stand for this. I will defend, you know, America's honor with my own blood. <laughs> the Cold War. The, 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 the <laughs> what do we move to America for? You know, yeah. yeah what are yeah, we? What the, are power we? Uh, something that claimed to be a democracy that wasn't democracy against something <laughs> claimed to be socialist that wasn't socialist. Wasn't yes, uh, we're just being duped left and right. You know, our family. We got to move somewhere where we're in a, to an honest society where the where the where the, the, right. what they're selling well, is the truth. At least you avoided yeah. Israel. That was the main thing. <laughs> Well, at least what they're selling there is the truth. They're selling an ethno state. You're getting an ethno state. You know. I yeah. used to live with this German German Jew who said that she. So the great thing about spending six months in Israel is that she decided she was happy to be a German. <laughs> German Jew. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can, oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I guess I would have been happy to be Ru- like a. I didn't find more as Russian if I had to live in Israel. <laughs> she said it was the so, most racist country she'd ever lived in. Uh, and she'd lived in America, so she knew about racism. And she said that wasn't just Israelis against Palestinians. It was against, you know, it was the Ashkenazi against the Sephardi yeah. against the Russians, against the, and everyone hated the Ethiopians. <laughs> but this idea yeah. they're all Jews together. No, no, they just all got in one country so they could hate each other. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, no, the the yeah. racism in that country is out of you control. You know, I I think we we probably have to yeah, wrap, yeah, up. wrap up. Thank you, but you know. Yeah, I, I want to ask you one question. Yeah. Do you know this um, book, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker? No. No? Uh, okay. Oh, okay. I was just curious. Anyway, uh, it's fine. It just has this interesting concept of um, kind of immortality projects, I guess he coined well, it. There was something in the Soviet Union, wasn't there? They wanted to, they had some of those. I'm trying to think. Cosmism? No, no, no. It's not about cosmism. Wasn't there Bogdanov died? Bogdanov was part of cosmism. Yeah. Yes, yes. He he actually died from blood transfusion. But either way. Like he was like a vampire. He's going to renew himself all the time. The working class, you know, take on the blood of the working class. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the opposite of vampire. He wanted to give blood to yeah. someone else to renew them. Yeah. yeah. No, but it's a. It's interesting because because as I said, I, we thought Lenin was was Nosferatu when we saw it. That's Red funny. Is. He will come. He will. He will come back. I to think life. he'll come back. 
<laughs> we'll pray if we pray enough. The Chinese will come back and revive him. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm saying is that I think there's going to be... Chinese tourists. The chi- chi- yeah, Chinese tourists. Chi- it's good for... The- you need the cloning technology so you can have like a traveling circus with these, with these you know, these... Well, these, I said, um, it's in- it's interesting. as I said, it was interesting even in 87 <laughs> that people, they all thought we were a bit odd, that we, we were only interested in the revolution. This guy yes. in Leningrad, this guy complained at the Peter and Paul Fortress, and we go, and he said, and, we, and so... My then she goes, where was Trotsky? And he said, everybody from England always asks where Trotsky was. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, are we trying to explain? Said, well, the only people uh, people uh, heard of about Russian history are Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. So what do you expect? <laughs> we don't That's know funny. anybody else in Russian history. I mean, why, why should we? The rest of it's, I said, it's just like the rest of you. It's just boring kings and whatever. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, who cares about Peter? You know, Peter the Great, or yeah, it's no, like no, yeah. Exactly. Where's, where's Trotsky? Where did he sleep? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, Trotsky's much yeah. more interesting. You know, a friend of mine is a Trotskyist group, and they had this member who saw Trotsky in the 1920s in a white leather uniform, like he was a member <laughs> of the village people. I just thought it was wonderful. <laughs> it was quite a flamboyant. I didn't know he had a white leather uniform. Oh, I knew yeah, he had yeah, a black yeah, leather well, uniform. You know, there's a, you know the Ukrainian peasants. Kulak son who made it. <laughs> there yeah. I am running I'm running the Imperial Army, finally. <laughs> and I have Cossacks too on my command. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we should go. Oh yeah. Th- thanks okay, for thank thanks you. for joining us. American boy, American boy, American boy.